You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 587. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 27th of September, 2023. Today's episode, not listening to ATC. A JetBlue flight makes a dangerous wrong turn approaching JFK. And a cargo plane starts down the runway without takeoff clearance in Cincinnati. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Rocket Man Part 2. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger. Flight 587 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently in a, at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 Jeff wins. Steph is here. On 92.3 FM in... New York City! And... And joining us from her lakeside studio in South... Kagalecki! Kagalecki! She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, sprint training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper. It's Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. That was um, actually pretty good for um, not really knowing I was here until you had to do my intro. So, Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I try. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm impressed, actually, is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. So. <laughs> well, thanks. I would have I messed that up entirely. So, I'm, well, done. well, I'm Glad impressed. I'm impressed that you're here with us. I, I, we really appreciate it. And guess who else is here? From his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Well, hello, fellow crew members. Lovely to be back on the show after a whole week's break. I feel thoroughly rested. I bet you've been doing nothing, but we're going to find out here uh, pretty soon in the show and also joining us. From her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Here I am. Hi, everybody. Great to see y'all. We're uh, hi, Liz. Yeah, unfortunately, we uh, we don't have uh, Nick Camacho and Miami Rick with us today, but we're just going to have to make do without them. And uh, have a good show, you guys. Thanks, and analyze. Thanks, Cheers, Some please. aviation news. Stand. 
Stand by for news. All right. The first item in our news segment today is an update from a story that we talked about a couple of episodes ago involving a Delta Airlines A350-900 registration November 576 Delta Zulu performing flight 175 from Milan to Atlanta. Uh, They were descending into the Atlanta airport area when they encountered severe turbulence, causing a number of injuries. I surmised at that point when we talked about this um, a little while back that uh, uh, they may have encountered some turbulence from the outer rings of the, uh, at one point, hurricane and at this point uh, where the storm was located, making its way up through central and northern uh, Georgia. Uh, one of the outer bands, per- perhaps, was what they encountered. And uh, we're looking at some um, an imagery on the video right now. We'll have that in the show notes. In fact, you're probably looking at it right now if you're using a, uh, uh, a, a uh, podcast player that has uh, embedded chapter images. Uh, the flight track of the Delta Flight 175, and uh, looks like they flew right through the middle of a not super colored heavy heavy rain, but kind of uh, getting there. Um, you know the how color weather radar has different uh, varying intensities based on the rainfall rate, and uh, this looks like it's up around uh, 40. Uh, decibels uh zulu whatever that stands for and i guess it's the intensity of the rainfall but it's kind of orangey uh, where they went right through and pretty much smack dab through the middle of it if the uh if the radar return coincides exactly with their flight track so yeah it makes sense now why they encountered some uh severe turbulence and we also talked about the fact that I, and it's kind of beyond me why uh, – I don't like to second guess. Well, actually, I do. Um, the uh, But I probably shouldn't. Let's second guess and speculate but, and do all the things. Yeah, so let's I'm, do I'm all that. All Gossip. The, all the yeah. things. All the stuff. Let's do all the all things. Um, so uh, at my airline, which is very similar to this one, um, they have a – deal where you uh, do a briefing uh, earlier than you normally would if you're expecting on your descent and approach uh, that you might encounter some turbulent conditions. And it's basically uh, briefing the flight attendant or the the, uh, flight attendant representative, the purser or the lead flight attendant, uh, that you know we might encounter something. So uh, instead of the normal, say, 25, 30 minutes when you give them an indication to prepare the cabin for the descent and landing, uh, you maybe go push it back to 45, 50 minutes before. So they have plenty of time to take care of all the things that they would normally take care of on the descent, and they can get in their seats with their seatbelts fastened and nobody's walking around in that part of the uh, part of the flight. And the um, the dispatcher usually has uh, some kind of a, a note uh, when these kind of procedures are, are going to be in effect. And I think I've mentioned before in the past that I've been doing this procedure since uh, I was a captain. I became a captain in 2000. And this is the procedure that I've been using before it became a formal procedure at my company. Um, and, uh, just assumed that everybody was doing this kind of thing, but apparently not. They had to make it a, a formal kind of program anyway. So my point is 
I'm coming into Atlanta and from a foreign destination, maybe they're not paying attention to the weather systems going through the I'm, U.S. I'm going to add time. something to this too in a second, but okay. they're uh, pretty close to Atlanta at this point too. Correct? I know. So I always thought they were further away. Because we were, we were thinking initially that this was, they were further away. We were trying to blame this on Charlotte having terrible mm-hmm. weather, but it doesn't yeah. seem that was the case. We're off the hook here in Charlotte. Not our Oh uh, yeah. Okay. We'll fault. let you off the hook, Steph. <laughs> this is one time. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, we. I thought um, in the initial report, I thought it kind of it kind of um, indicated to me they were about 40, 50 miles to the uh, to the northeast of Atlanta. But apparently, they were much closer in. And um, at this point, there. Well, I'm not that familiar with the the arrivals, but they mm-hmm. were uh, ten miles from Aussie. Is that yeah. right? And I've been doing a quick add up of uh, distances. Oh yeah, maybe they were outside of forty down. miles. Yeah. Aussie's about forty. Yeah. Isn't it? I've yeah. got 20, 37, uh, plus 7, 44. So I reckon they're about 50-odd miles. Oh, so we were right then the airport. At, at first. I, I don't know why well, I thought they were a little Charlotte. bit closer in. No, no, no. Because So, okay, so they were 10 miles prior to that Aussie intersection when they identified yeah. the radar return 40 miles ahead near Killer, which is very close. So oh, they, okay. I thought they hit it near, near Aussie. Um, oh, maybe they did. Let's see. Hold on. Hold on. Near Aussie. Uh, oh, yeah. It actually was much closer to that. I, I take it back. I have to read farther ahead. Okay. So. Yeah, I'm confused yeah, too, Steph, because right. I was thinking. So, but anyway, it was between those two points, but still somewhere, somewhere close to Aussie, not yet to that killer intersection. Yeah, so. a small white cloud near Aussie, they say, which they flew through, and that's where they got the turbulence. Well, it may have been anyway. white uh, in yep. appearance from their vantage point, but uh, I think it was probably Inside gray, it was dark dusty. gray. <laughs> very, <laughs> it was very all bumpy. fuffy on the outside and Dirty and horrible. And yeah. Disgusting. And their defense, I think it says that they did ask for some deviation around it, didn't they? They were asking for the deviation, the 40 miles ahead near the other point oh, okay. on the arrival. Yeah. I, I guess maybe, so maybe they thought they at this point it wasn't going to be a big cloud. deal. Some, You know, honestly, sometimes yeah. these things, you know, you're getting close in, you're about to turn the downwind, and uh, you look at it and go, eh, probably is not going to be that bad. But still, um, maybe at this point they had already done uh, the indication for the 10 minutes before landing kind of uh, – notification and the flight attendants just bounced up out of their seats and started doing their final walkthrough, that kind of thing. I don't know. But uh, anyway, didn't work out very well uh, because of all the injuries. Now, of course, we also mentioned, now we're, I'm just talking about flight attendants right here, but weren't most of the injuries uh, passengers in this case? I have you to know, I remind myself I again. Eight, eight passengers, four cabin yeah. crew. Exactly. And the, ca- the passengers, you know, they they had no business being up out of their seats or in their seats without their seat belts fastened. So I guess, uh, you know, it couldn't have been avoided. Have well, we can, we can put a, we don't have to talk about this now because I'll talk about this in the getting to know us because I took a international flight yesterday and I'll come back to this and my thoughts on the last like hour and a half or so of the flight mm-hmm. to coming back across the pond. Oh, you're going to wait until I, the- I have some things to say. Yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait till that. I'll come okay. back to that. We'll. Oh, what a tease! Us. Just yeah, just a just a tease. Hey, what we want tease. you to keep listening. Oh. It's not that yeah. far away. Hey, yeah. Give Don't it an hour anywhere. or so, and we'll come back and we'll talk about this. And by the way, if you're um, if you're watching us on the uh, YouTube video, I've never done this before, but it's I'm going to do it today. 
don't forget to subscribe and like our video. (laughs) (laughs) What a good idea. Well done. I don't know if it makes any difference at all because we don't monetize our videos. But hey, it's kind of fun to say it. Don't forget to like and subscribe. More more followers, more Just before you move on, Jeff, yeah. UH Blackhawk has a comment. Oh, UH Blackhawk in our live audience says, there are some days going into ATL where you can't dodge every buildup. Well, that is Very true. true. That is true. Mm-hmm. But and if they you, build up quickly. But if you, so long as you got everyone seated, it would have been fine. You'd have, you'd have had a rough ride for a minute, yeah. but yeah. what have they had to Two crew and two passengers had serious injuries. Eight crew and five passengers sustained minor injuries. So um, 10 of the crew, that's just about everyone in the cabin, the cabin crew, Mm -hmm. were out of their seats, I'm Mm -hmm. assuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this so is a case that where, and I will tell you okay. about that. And then I will, <laughs> I will also add before we move on to our next item that uh, if I saw that presented to me, now it's sometimes it's it's kind of um, it doesn't look as bad as you think it's going to actually be. But if I have any, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to this. I'll call up and say, "Hey, look, just take your seats now, and if we have time before we land and we get through this area to do the final walkthrough, that's great. If not, then just do your little PA about, you know, if you have any trash, put it in your, you know, in the in the seat back in front of you and that kind of thing, and we'll take care of it once we're on the ground. Uh, because I don't want this to happen, because there's a lot of paperwork involved, and not to mention the fact that <laughs> these are nice people and you don't want them injured, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, so one more point yeah. about the weather in this case, though, a little bit different than like the afternoon sun, uh, summer buildups that we normally get here in the southeast because this was part of a tropical system. And I think it was part of kind of the outer bands of it. Um, they do look and behave a little bit differently than what you might be used to seeing. So, yeah, yeah. I agree. So that's the update on that. Our next item is some video Send him to us from uh, Sam. 2690 Heavy Cincinnati Tower, runway 27, line up and wait traffic, two mile final on the intersecting runway. Line up and wait, runway 27, County 690 Heavy. Dipper 5117 traffic holding in position on the intersecting runway. Dipper 4939 North on Tango, call ground. North on Tango, call ground, Dipper 4939. Kalita Air, call sign Connie. Okay, they are. Uh, told to line up and wait on 2-7, and they do that, and then they start rolling for takeoff on runway 2-7, and Endeavor 5117 is just landing on 1-8 center, an intersecting runway. Oh, Connie, cancel takeoff clearance. Connie, cancel takeoff clearance, please. Okay, it's a takeoff clearance. They are canceling takeoff clearance, Connie 690. Okay, the takeoff clearance that they never received. <laughs> Connie, 690 Heavy, I'm sorry if there was any confusion. Uh, you were just supposed to line up on the runway. Do you need to exit the runway, and uh, are you able to just swing back around? We can exit the runway and swing back around for Connie, 690 Heavy. Connie, 690 Heavy, Roger, just continue down the runway, make a left turn onto Mike, and then uh, just let me know when you're ready. Roger that, ma'am. We'll make a left turn onto Mike. We'll let you know for Connie, 690 Heavy. Thanks. Endeavor 5117, taxi via Juliet to the ramp. Juliet to the ramp, Endeavor 5117. Is that a three-year-old? You need a minute before uh, you're ready to go again. Yes, ma'am. If you could just give us one, uh, about two minutes for County 690 Heavy. 
26 90 heavy that's that's no problem and then uh just because of that confusion there um we, we have to log it on our end so i do gotta like reach an official statement give you a phone number roger that ma'am just let me know when you're ready we're ready to copy for county 690 county 690 heavy just for a possible pilot deviation uh when you're able you can give us a call at the phone number area code 859 372 5309 8675 Yeah, exactly. Okay. And by the way, 859er 3720. Well, you know what? Uh yeah. that's probably the uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um No, this is just a comment for uh, Captain Nick. Uh the first time that Mike Carroll's heard me on the radio, dispatcher Mike, he made a comment that I sounded very young. <laughs> so, it's yes. take your daughter to work day. Exactly. <laughs> that, that also it's was just... a comment made about me flying the airplane one time. <laughs> I love it. Actually, it was, yes. oh my gosh, are they going to let that little girl fly the airplane? And it was like, I'm 40, but thanks. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. You're a little girl, though. You're a girl. I mean, I'm not even that you're little. little. Like, well, you're not little, um, but you're like, you're little. You're like okay. thin as a rail. Well, we, <laughs> pretty skinny. I haul skinny. boxes. Yeah. Loves skinny. the aircraft. Uh, what I haul aircraft. boxes. What what a beautiful aircraft. Yes, it is. It's a seven forty seven. Yeah, it's about that, that beautiful old museum piece. That's well, I definitely didn't wow. have clearance. Okay, yeah, hang on, hang on. I wasn't even ready for that yet. No, it's a 400, okay. isn't it? It's a 400. Yeah, it's a 400. <laughs> That's what I said. No, it's not a classic. No. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Not a, not a classic. It's no, just the 747 747 in classic. general is classic. Yes, That is, is a 400. Correct. Oh, okay. So you All right. So uh, discuss. Let's discuss. Uh, I think that was a very uh, calm, cool, and collected air traffic yep. control tower person um noticing yep. that that thing was rolling you know a big airplane like that sometimes it's hard to see any relative motion and you know right away and then at uh, at a certain point uh, she looked down and went whoa wait a minute you know cancel your takeoff it was funny because cancel your takeoff clearance well you never really got a takeoff clearance but i guess that's better than saying or, or i've heard controllers say stop stop <laughs> that kind of mm -hmm. thing um <laughs> Stop is very unambiguous, you know. Yeah. Cancel is pretty unambiguous. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it would just just words that convey the the meaning that you need and with um, some sense of urgency. Yeah, I, I love her change in tone of her voice. Mm -hmm. The urgency was just so clear, uh, and um, the crew obviously thought they had a takeoff clearance. So uh, it's a pretty standard call: cancel your takeoff clearance. Um, so I, I've heard that. A few times for real, uh, and so yeah, I'm aware of that terminology. That's that's yeah, pretty common. Point. So I think it was a mm -hmm. great use. Um, I uh, but the really important thing was I think she didn't try and blame the crew for doing yeah. anything wrong. She just let it ride, uh, and of course I think that's so important for the crew because they've got to turn around and have another go taken off you don't want them to be all annoyed flustered or uh, overexcited because uh, of what's just occurred i think her attitude was really professional uh, very impressed yeah i agree i think professional all around too even from the uh, Kalita crew you know yeah 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 
There were, there were no attempts to excuse themselves or try and find out what had happened. They just, okay, fair enough. Off I mean, we go. very good example of everybody in these situations is human. And we all have, um, you know, this is, I think, a good example of what you call it, expectation bias, perhaps. You know, you're line up and wait, but if you were expecting just to go, you know, that it's more yep. than more than one person in that um, uh, amongst that crew that understood the same message, even though that's not what was given. I think one of the nice things about her tone of voice was you could almost sense that she just hated telling them that possible yeah, pilot deviation. To. Sorry, that uh, here's a number that you need to call. And uh, yeah, it was yeah she was almost apologetic, giving mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. that information, which is uh, which is nice. I think. All right. Um, uh, this is a uh, another. Um, YouTube channel called, uh, what's it called? Real eight? No. Um, you can see ATC. You can see ATC. All right. So let me pause this so I can read it to you. A, uh, this took place on the 25th of August, uh, New York, New York, a JetBlue Airways Airbus A320 registration, November 568, Juliet Bravo performing flight 2826 from Tampa International Airport to New York, John F. Kennedy International was on final approach to JFK runway 22 left, uh, but the tower controller instructed them to go around and turn left uh, to a heading of 180 degrees, but the crew started a right turn heading 280. As a result, they crossed the final of runway 22 right where another aircraft was descending toward JFK. This situation shows how important it is to listen to the pilot's readback. Okay, so we're going to uh, watch this uh, simulation depiction of the event and listen to the live ATC audio. Kennedy Tower, JetBlue 2826, ILS 22 left. JetBlue 2826, Kennedy Tower, runway 22 left, crossway turbulence, heavy going 787, six miles ahead, runway 22 left for the land. 22 left, clear to land, caution for the wait, JetBlue 2826. JetBlue 2826, cancel your uh, approach, continue, and uh, go around, turn left, heading 180, climb, maintain 2000. Okay, cancel approach 2000, 280 on the heading, JetBlue uh, 2826. Tower, Endeavour 5097, inbound 22 right. Endeavour 5097, Kennedy Tower, wind 200, 15, runway 22 right, cleared to land. 
Okay. Yeah. Kind of crunched up uh, audio there at the end. Uh, so this is an interesting one. Uh, IMC, and uh, they direct the JetBlue flight to go around, fly heading 180, and the JetBlue pilot Redback heading 280, and the controller didn't listen for that readback, or if they did, they didn't catch the fact that he stated a, a heading that was 100 degrees off to what they wanted them to do. And In the initial instructions, though, they did say left turn to he did, Yeah, that's true. That's true. So going from the, about a 220 heading to 280 means you have to turn right, yeah. um, which should have clued them in a little bit, which makes me think that they were in the middle of doing something when that approach clearance was canceled. And, you know, they read back what they thought they heard or the bits of it that they heard and processed. Um, but, yeah, there there was no confirmation of what was said in the, the readback. Yeah. And the readback didn't include the direction. He gave the wrong not. heading and he never gave a, a direction. Which makes which me think he missed quite a bit be. of it. Missed that, but uh, that you know, I'm just going. Well, that's a bit lazy. You're supposed to read back everything you hear. So, mm-hmm. and the controller would have given a direction, mm-hmm. as he did. In fact, the crew misheard uh, or misinterpreted and gave the wrong read back. The controller made the situation, you know, continued the error by not spotting the read back error. Yep. Yep. It's like those Funyuns when they line up, like yeah, Funyun, 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 Funyun. Yep. And then the and other of course, th- yeah, oh, sorry, Jeff, I was just saying the, the JetBlue boy is basically doing S-turns now in front of the <laughs> guy behind him. So he's in, he's getting closer and closer while he's and I'm sure doing this maneuvering. And I'm sure what's happening up there, they're yeah. right in front All of us. All at the same height, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was, was there a frequency change in the middle of all that as well? I think no, at the not end until of the, the end. Yeah. Okay. All right. To get them resequenced back in. Um, but two yeah. different um, controllers, you yeah, know, for the two different runways. And there's a lot of there's a lot going on there when you were told to discontinue your approach and, and execute a go-around uh, procedure, uh, granted. Uh, but you also have to kind of have a little bit of situational awareness that they're running parallel approaches to the two to left and two to right and it should you should like oh wait a minute you want me to turn right heading 280 that's going to take me into the path of the parallel um runway and the approaches to that parallel runway i don't know um indeed i mean i don't envy the jet blue because he's just been given a go around uh he was actually above that go around altitude so what I was reading was about 2,100 on him. He was given a go-round at 2,000. Regardless, mm-hmm. uh, it's always very different when you have to do uh, a, an intermediate approach go-round. It's not like the ones you practice continually in the sim, uh, a go-round for minimums. This requires a bit of thought, and uh, you don't practice them very often. So there was probably a little bit of... Uh, you know, question mark in the cockpit as to how they were going to conduct this go around. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the natural thing is you want the power to come up, right? To toga power. And 
if you're going to actually descend a little bit or you're going to stay at your altitude, yeah, that's going to result in all kinds of overspeed warnings and everything else going on. It's going to be a mess. Indeed. It's going to be crazy. Indeed. Yeah. If you if you select uh, to initiate the tow, the go around, you've got to select toga. Uh, so the airplane's immediately going to go like, get lots of power and it's going to initiate a climb. If you're already above, perhaps only by a few feet, but above the altitude you're supposed to be remaining at. So you've really got to think hard to stop yourself from. And this is one of the annoying things. I hate to say it about JFK because I've got so many annoying things about JFK. But um, this go around as will all their go-arounds, bear absolutely no relation to the standard missed approach procedure on every approach plate you do. So we are always briefed the standard missed approach procedure, and our SOPs required us to put three or 4,000 feet as the standard uh, go-around altitude to capture, and air traffic always gave you something different. They gave you something off uh, they just dreamt up at the, at the moment to suit uh -huh. their their needs, and uh, complete. You know, it's out of the blue. So now you've got to go. Oh, okay, I've got to do a go around, but I've got to completely change what I had planned and briefed to do in the event of a go around. They just like to challenge the pilots, Nick. Come on. <laughs> well, I have to say, you know, night busy, something's going wrong. It is a challenge. Yes. There you go. All right. Well, happy ending in this case. Uh, they kept the airplanes apart. And uh, it's interesting, though, they didn't say, hey, copy down this number. There's a possible pilot deviation because I think that maybe they realized that they were a little bit complicit in the whole thing also, right? I mean, or they, they had a part well, of it. They, they did, weren't they, completely. The, you know, the JetBlue guys read back mm -hmm. what they thought they heard. Which was not correct. And that's why we read back things. Uh, the controllers are mm -hmm. supposed to listen to what we're reading back to make sure that we got what they told us to do. Yeah. And so, uh, oh, well, it's one of those situations, I guess. Um, let's continue with this. Uh, it's a preliminary report, um, August 20, 2023. Oh, yeah. Remember this? We talked about this not long ago on August 20th. About 23.15 Pacific Daylight Time, so late at night, uh, just before, yeah, getting close to midnight, Alaska Airlines Flight 1288, a Boeing 737-890, sustained damage when the left main landing gear collapsed after landing on runway 20 right at John Wayne Orange County Airport, uh, Santa Ana, California, SNA. The 112 passengers and crew evacuated the airplane via stairs onto runway uh, taxi excuse me, on taxiway echo with no injuries. The flight was operating under the provisions of blah, 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 blah. Okay. Uh, the flight crew reported that prior to the final approach fix, the airplane was fully configured. They had completed the before landing checklist. Everything appeared normal. They were also making position reports uh, via the common traffic advisory frequency, a CTAF, as the, the tower was closed. Flight crew reported that there was moderate rain, shifting winds, light turbulence, and instrument meteorological conditions until the aircraft broke out at about 800 feet above ground level. By the way, this is also that big storm that was hitting uh, Southern California that came up. Um, and it was, I, I don't think it was quite a hurricane when it mm -hmm. made landfall in California. Yep. It, yep. it may have been. Or it was, California. It was uh, pretty close to it by the time it uh, got up into, and it was like the, the first like major 
hurricane slash tropical storm in Southern California for like 84 years or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So um, it was it was not really lovely conditions, I guess we could say. Um, although the weather was improving, the captain and the first officer discussed that a firm touchdown was appropriate. As And John Wayne, for those of you out there who have either flown into it as a passenger or as a pilot, you know that eh, almost always it's going to be probably a pretty firm touchdown because the runway is not that long uh, to begin with. And then throw in all these really adverse weather conditions and I can see why they said, yeah, a uh, firm touchdown is going to be appropriate. Uh, back to the report. As soon as they saw the runway, the captain, who was the pilot flying, disengaged the autopilot and auto throttle. The first officer during the approach continued to monitor the flight status, noting that the aircraft was on speed and on path. During the descent, all systems were operational and all the landing gear position indicate, uh, indicator lights were green, indicating both main landing gear and the nose gear were in their down and locked position. The airplane crossed the end of the runway on the glide path and touched down just past the 1,000-foot marker. According to the captain, upon landing, the touchdown had a firm jolt feeling to it, and the aircraft was pulling reasonably hard to the left. The captain was able to overcome this with rudder pedal input and was able to keep the plane on the center line. He stated to the first officer that it felt like the airplane had a flat tire on the left main landing gear. The FO completed the after-landing checklist, and uh, w- which included bringing the auxiliary power unit online. The captain slowed the aircraft to taxi speed and exited the runway onto taxiway echo. After the aircraft made the turn onto the taxiway, the crew noticed that the aircraft was listing to the left. The captain stopped uh, the airplane on the taxiway, set the parking brake, opened his window, looked outside, and noticed that the aircraft was resting on the left engine cowling. It appeared to be still running normally. He immediately shut down the left engine. The captain also noted that the left landing gear position indicator light was not green anymore. It had gone completely dark, whereas the nose and right main landing gear position indicator lights were still green. After confirming the APU was running, he shut down the right engine. He made uh, announcements to the passenger cabin and briefed the flight attendants. No injuries were reported. The FO announced uh, their intentions via CTAF to remain on taxiway echo and SNA crash, fire, and rescue responded to the scene. After crash, fire, and rescue determined that there were no fuel leaks and the flight crew confirmed that there were no injuries on board the aircraft and evacuation was performed through the right one R1 door via stairs onto the taxiway. Post-accident examination of the airplane revealed that the main landing gear aft trunnion pin had fractured. Uh, The aft end of the left main landing gear had traveled up, puncturing the composite panels, protruded out and above the wing surface. Main landing gear walking beam was also protruding above the surface of the wing. The forward section of the aft trunnion pin was located inside the trunnion and was held in place by a damaged but uh, intact cross bolt. The aft section of the pin had separated and was located in the main landing gear beam spherical bearing. It's exactly what I said at the time we covered this initially. That's what I think (laughs) happened. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) What are these words I'm reading? (laughs) The left main landing gear had sustained damage as a result of the left main landing gear moving out of position and contacting the beam after the failure of the trunnion pin. Left wing uh, flap transmission drive unit located in the left wing well separated from its mounting structure and was found on the runway near the airplane's initial touchdown point. 
Upon notification, the following NTSB specialists were assigned uh, to investigate the accident. Okay, we don't need to go through that. Um, the digital flight data recorder and cockpit voice recorder were, were removed from the airplane and shipped to the NTSB's vehicle recorder laboratory located in Washington, D.C. The digital flight data recorder was downloaded on and a review of the preliminary data indicates that the aircraft touched down with a maximum vertical acceleration of 1.71 G. Not super firm. I mean, it's firm for sure, but uh, mm -hmm. the value is below the hard landing threshold of 2.2 G per Alaska Airlines uh, Aircraft Maintenance Manual, uh, Chapter 5 limitations. The cockpit voice recorder was downloaded and the data is currently being analyzed. The left main landing gear trunnion pin was removed and the structures group reconvened at the Boeing Equipment Quality Analysis Laboratory in Seattle, Washington for further analysis. Or just convened, I think, not reconvened. Hmm. Okay, anyway, I'm not going to criticize the uh, their grammar. Mm -hmm. uh, although I just did, I guess. Um, all right. Um, just a bunch of garbage. <laughs> so... Yeah, so you know, we when we first discussed this, we thought, oh, it had to have been just a way too hard landing, and they just you know basically destroyed the left main landing gear. But now it looks like uh, they did everything they were supposed they to do, and it just there was some kind of a structural yeah. failure. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. I think crew accelerated. Um, the aircraft uh, might have had a previous hard landing that could have damaged this uh, component, or it just uh, chose that moment to fail. And uh, the uh, slightly harder than usual landing was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, it's a 5,700-foot so. uh, long runway, by the way. Yeah, so, it's, so yeah. Yeah, as far as well, you know, jet transports, uh, yeah. that's kind of short. Yeah. 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 That's what she said. <laughs> so, well, well done. I thought the crew reading this, I thought the crew handled it very well, actually. Um, I mean, it must be quite um, disconcerting uh, landing, having a, an incident like this, and there's no one in the tower <laughs> yeah, who do you, to talk like, to. I know. Thankfully, you know, crash, fire, and rescue were uh, on yeah. airport. For, I mean, they're required yeah, scheduled, to. Scheduled flights coming in. Yeah, you've got scheduled flights coming in. They need to be there, but yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what yeah. I was thinking. This is a bad time to have this kind of thing happen. I, I'm actually kind of yeah. surprised that, uh, that it's not a full 24-7 kind of tower operation. Orange Maybe, County? Yeah. yeah. It was stormy. They I, had I mean, to get home. Pretty reasonably busy area. Yeah, very. I, I used to work there, Southern actually, <laughs> when I was mm -hmm. uh, in uh, in college. Um and it was at that time was very very busy with GA traffic. They, that's kind of cut down quite a bit uh, since I worked there uh, that summer. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, sure enough, tower hours or tower hours. That sounds funny. Um, Six fifteen a.m. to um, eleven p.m. local. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, yeah. So they it looks like the crew handled this appropriately and uh, no injuries, and so you know. All in all, as, as so far at least, uh, based on this is just the preliminary, um, looks like the, the crew did the right thing and uh, it was a good outcome for everybody. Well, not perfectly good. I mean, they probably would have enjoyed maybe actually getting to the terminal and walking off the airplane and not being 
not getting soaking wet. I'm sure if they tried a bit harder, they could have dragged the airplane along the taxiway to the terminal. Didn't they ever watch Airplane, the movie? Yeah, that's true. Not not very uh, determined, were they? I mean, no. I, I was about to say when I was reading the re- pre- preliminary report after the captain looked out the window and shut down the left engine and then went ahead and proceeded to taxi the airplane back to the terminal, <laughs> over to the terminal. <laughs> well, it was already damaged, so we figure what's what a little the, bit more yeah, scraping the on the ground. It's fine. Yeah. And wondering the whole time if the jetway was going to uh, be able to drop down low enough uh, yeah. to yes. uh, yeah. get everybody out the airplane. Uh, oh, anyway. True. All right. Anything anything left to be said about that, or you want to move on? No, I'd be interested to know what the cause of the failure was. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. It was the trunnion. We'll have to wait another two years. And um, yeah, why did the trunnion metallurgical analysis to trunnion sounds like funyun? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim in the uh, chat room already gave us our uh, show title here. I think funyuns with the trunnions. Oh, very good. Ah. Liz will write that but down. He, but he uh, misspelled Funyun. That's F-U-N-Y-U-N, wow. I think. Yes. I think Get so, it right, yeah. it's okay. Jim. Of course, I don't think they have. Do you have Funyuns <laughs> over there in uh, the UK? Probably not. No, I don't think no. so. We do. <laughs> don't know what you're missing. Uh, you haven't managed to infect our uh, snack <laughs> industry with those yet. Yeah, Give good. us time. <laughs> Give us time. <laughs> Okay, uh, this, this next Thanks, item uh, sent to us by uh, Sam uh, Dawson. Uh, let's see, the, from Reuters.com. Reuters, yeah. uh, September 20th uh, was when this was updated. Um, okay, London, September 20, Reuters. Jet engine maker CFM International said on Wednesday, thousands of engine components may have been sold with forged paperwork by a British distributor as the fallout from a probe into falsely certified parts reached London's high court. Matthew Reeve, a lawyer for CFM and its co-owners, General Electric and Safran, or Safran, I don't know. I never know how to pronounce that. Um, Said that um, AOG Technics Technics had engaged in a deliberate, dishonest, and sophisticated scheme to deceive the market with falsified documents on an industrial scale. Uh, European regulators have said that they are investigating reports that some parts supplied by the London-based firm without valid certificates had been found inside CFM-56 engines, which power some Airbus and Boeing jets. A bunch of them, I think. AOG did not address the underlying claim of forgery in the hearing, which was called to discuss procedural issues. The company did not immediately respond to a request for comment on its main number, which went to hold, then voicemail. And here's an excerpt of the voicemail. No. Uh, the discovery <laughs> had prompted airlines to change parts on a handful of planes, and so far only a fraction of the 23,000 existing CFM 56 engines has been affected. That's good. Uh, but we've said in court filings that CFM and its engine partners have compelling documentary evidence that thousands of jet engine parts have been sold by AOG to airlines operating commercial aircraft fitted with the claimant's jet engines. These include parts for CFM engine, CM, <laughs> CFM 56 engines built by the GE Safran joint venture, uh, CFM, and a very small number of C56 or C. F6 engines used mainly to power cargo planes 
and manufactured purely by GE. Those are the big ones, I think, right? The CF6s, or I think they're a bigger engine. Industry sources said the majority of spare parts sold by distributors like AOG involved small items that are not made by the engine ma- makers themselves and are not considered critical. Even so, the number of planes that could have been taken out of service for checks is approaching 100, and analysts say any disruption to the tightly monitored system of controls underpinning the safety of air travel must be tackled quickly. Reeves said that so far, 86 falsified documents known as release certificates had been identified. By Monday, the number of engines suspected to have parts with forged documents had risen to 96. Uh, Potentially, that means between 48 and 96 aircraft being taken out of service whilst airlines arrange for the parts to be removed. Um, Anyway, so uh, this is no good. Uh, We want to make sure that the parts that they're using uh, for these jet engines, which are critical components of airplanes, um, are are good. They're they're not uh, fake or uh, substandard. I think uh, it's a criminal enterprise. Uh, one of the reasons that these parts um, are appear a lot more expensive than they might be warranted is because they have an, an absolutely or should have an absolutely secure paper trail going right back to their point of manufacture. So, I mean, there is quite a, a large market in second-hand parts, uh, aircraft parts, uh, and that's because uh, each component is lifed. If it's only part the way through its life, that's a perfectly acceptable thing. But the one thing you can be guaranteed is that when you use a part, you have got the paperwork going right back to its point of manufacture to guarantee that its life is what it says it is and uh, its serviceability is um, what is claimed. uh, And all that can be traced. So when you go to an uh, an aircraft accident and if it's a component failure the um, accident investigators will be able to work out ex- the the whole life history of every part of the aircraft as soon as you get some um i'm trying to think of a word other than shyster uh involved in the <laughs> so i couldn't sorry <laughs> involved in the fraudulent representation of um illegal parts or perhaps they were second-hand parts or whatever, uh, not manufactured to uh, the correct standard, and then they forge the paperwork, you are introducing a whole pile of hurt for those uh, innocent people who end up using those components and, of course, they might fail uh, and um, then you have got, you know, a, a terrible situation. Hello. What's happening? I, I agree. I don't know where Jeff went. I didn't really have Jeff. anything to add to that. I heard everything you said. I wanted Steph to, noise, uh, but... to, to, oh, to chime in chime in with what she thought. I, uh, because I, I was talking to Liz in the background. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was on a private channel, so we weren't sure what was happening. Yeah. We, were, we were concerned that, like, you know. You'd had a stroke were... or something? Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> incapacitated in some way. I oh, know I'm, I'm okay. I think I don't know. Is my fa- are are both sides of my face? I think our next news story is about pilot uh, even or it was one group. Yeah, that's a good segue to the next sh- next uh, item there. Is it though? Indeed. Is it? Uh, yeah, it is very good. Well, so Jeff they can't hear. They can't hear Liz. Someone's I mean, stroking Liz. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe I was having a stroke, but I wasn't. 
No, you're not. No, All right. Um, well, this or that is a great segue into this next news item uh, from uh, the Aviation Herald, avherald.com. A Corsair Airbus A330-900 registration hug. Uh, no, Foxtrot HH. Uh, uh, now all I can think of is, is hug. Hotel, hotel, uh, uniform golf, performing flight 925. We all need a hug, don't we? Uh, flight 925 from uh, Fort de France, Martinique, to Paris, Orly, France was en route at uh, flight level 370 over the Atlantic Ocean, about 150 nautical miles west-southwest of uh, Lodges, Azores, Islands, Portugal. When the captain became incapacitated, the first officer took control of the aircraft, declared Mayday, diverted to Lodges for a safe landing on runway 15 uh, about 30 minutes later. I've actually been to Lodges when I was in the Air Force. The aircraft remained on the ground for about 13 hours, then continued the flight and reached Paris, with a delay of about 13.5 hours. The French rated the occurrence a serious incident and opened an investigation. On September, so this happened January 18 of 2022, so about a year and a half ago, more than a year and a half ago. Uh, on the 21st of uh, September this year, um, let's see, BEA provided some additional abstract during a nighttime Transatlantic flight between Fort de France and uh, Paris, Orly, the CDB felt tired. The CDB, hmm. the uh, the captain. Okay. Come in, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> what does that actually stand for? The CDB. I'm right. trying to think in French what that yeah. might stand for. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's the it's the captain. Okay. Commander uh, felt uh, Commander de Beauplay. Commander de Beauplay. <laughs> That's it. Commander de Nailed it. <laughs> Thought so. Chef de... Boyardee. No, that would be BCBD. Chef Boyardee. Suddenly Again, I'm hungry for that's some an SpaghettiOs. Oh, oh, SpaghettiOs. Uh, oh, SpaghettiOs. Oh, my goodness. This is serious, people. Okay. This is serious. This is serious. When captains uh, the Gale, captain, it's serious. The captain felt tired at the end of the climb and lost consciousness shortly after. Well, it's a long way. Out. It's a long <laughs> climb to get there. Don't wonder he was tired. I mean, it would be tiring for a lot of people, most of us, I think. Yeah. A few minutes later, the co-pilot noticed that the CDB was not responding to her requests. After two attempts to wake him up, she called for the main purser, the CCP, <laughs> Using the emergency <laughs> phraseology provided in the event of incapacity of one of the flight attendants, the CCP arrived at a time when the CDB was gradually regaining its senses. All right. Uh, an initial analysis carried out by the, um, the lead flight attendant led the crew to call a doctor present among the passengers who diagnosed a simple hmm, bag, ba vagal. 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 Like a bagel, mm -hmm. only a with bagel, a bagel. Yes, bagel, bagel, a bagel discomfort. Like a, like a, <laughs> bagel. Too many bagels. Bagel I've had bagel discomfort. If you have too many of them, it's <laughs> wow. very discomfort. Surprise. Um, anyway, yeah. a, a simple now, bagel uh, if, discomfort. Forgive me, uh, Steph. That's yeah. when you faint through Correct. low blood pressure. Uh, that's yes. You could. That's 
Yeah, what, what he's describing here in diagnosing uh, is not a real thing. He's going, I don't know what happened up here. Seems like he was unconscious and now he's conscious again. So perhaps for whatever reason, blood pressure was low and he passed out and is waking back up. Not sure. Okay. But I don't have All a right. lot of tools or technology to figure out anything more sophisticated. So there you go. There you go. Right. Fair enough. After approximately two hours and several we'll go with that. After approximately two hours and several successive rests, the CDB's state of health further deteriorated while the plane was in the middle of the Atlantic, approximately equidistant from Fort de France and the archipelago of the Azores. When the doctor suspected a stroke and informed the co-pilot, she reassigned roles within the crew and decided on an emergency diversion to lodges. Even if the hospitalization capacities at the destination proved to be suitable, this criterion was not part of the decision-making process, as the co-pilot did not have this information. The co-pilot landed at Lodges, where the CDB was taken care of and hospitalized for several days. The BEA also released their final report in uh, French only. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. no. uh, and Simon's not happy with oh, that. Simon. <laughs> uh, he, he does say English version and analysis to be published in due time. Well, it's forthcoming just, oh. just, you know, it, on French time. It's not his normal rant. So we have to be happy about that. Fair enough. The captain's CDB state of health before the flight and decision to undertake the flight. Uh, he had been feeling tired for several days. During rest in Fort de France, he was unable to rest and mentioned headaches. It's likely that before the flight, his state of health had already deteriorated, and it's even possible that he had already suffered an illness of which he would not have been aware. At no time did he consider that his state of health might not be compatible with the flight. This illustrates the insidious nature of a subtle incapacity and the difficulty of self-assessment of one's own state of health for a crew member faced with the responsibility of not being able to carry out their mission. When the pilot in command lost, first lost consciousness, the co-pilot questioned the continuation of the flight and asked the uh, captain for his intentions. Uh, the captain's fitness for duty was not called into question. There was no transfer of responsibility, and the CDB decided to continue the flight. The co-pilot did not object on the basis of several factors. Uh, the captain was senior to her. No. Uh, the pilot had yeah. come to his senses and was behaving normally. The pilot was positive about his ability to continue the flight, referring to the safety rescue manual, MSS. The cabin crew did not associate the symptoms observed to be life-threatening. The doctor on board associated the symptoms initially observed with a probable vag vagal malaise. Her diagnosis was reassuring. The initial lack of reaction from the cabin crew when the co-pilot tried to wake them up was not considered a sufficient warning sign to declare him incapacitated, as were the two subsequent uh, requests for rests. Uh, this illustrates the difficulty of identifying and confirming partial or temporary incapacitation, and consequently to decide on the transfer of the CDB function as provided for in the operator's procedures. Okay, it goes on. Uh, I think we're getting... The gist of, of this whole thing. And um, it just, again, kind of brings into focus the idea that having fewer than two pilots on board, you know, commercial airline flights is probably not a good idea. You know, they're not um, incorrect in their assessment about there are, uh, you know, it seems a little strange to say that, you know, if you've suffered some sort of neurologic events like a stroke or a very minor stroke that you wouldn't be 
aware of your incapacitation there or your inability to uh, recognize that perhaps you're not fit for duty, but that's actually, it, people can be unaware of subtle deficits or, or subtle problems with their health. That happens all the time. And people can be very, very um, convincing to others. No, no, I'm okay. It's oh, all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Right, I'm this right. is uh, just take a little nap. no big deal. Like I'm good. We're just going to continue. I want to keep going, you know, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to make those assessments sometimes, especially when there's a lot of other things going on. Like you're operating a flight with a lot of <laughs> passengers in the back. Minor detail. Across an ocean. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm not very impressed uh, with the decisions made by either pilot, quite mm. honestly. Um, I, I was always a great believer of if you're not 100%, then you just don't go flying. Uh, everything feels worse when you're uh, in the slightly rarefied air of uh, altitude. So if you have got a, a slight problem on the ground, as soon as you're under pressure flying the aircraft, and as soon as you get to altitude, those symptoms always seem to be magnified. Um, and from the FO's point of view, uh, I'm just... Uh, really unsure as to why she thought it was okay. Just because the guys come round and said, oh, I'm feeling fine. Uh, the guy's been unconscious <laughs> in his seat, failed to respond, couldn't be roused. That, to me, would be an immediate turnaround and return. And what's more, if you do it back then, you're going back to an airport you know, uh, you're probably still under radar control and VHF radio. Things are so much simpler than she was faced with much later on, mid-Atlantic, now acting single pilot uh, for a return to an airfield she may not be familiar with at all, but even organising a return, a turn off the tracks and getting down and getting organized and, and finding all was, the paperwork we, we on your own. We didn't read something about it. We didn't read about it, but I think there was like an ACARS failure and other yep. things that I saw, to Yep, I saw that at the bottom. You just all pile this on. Mm -hmm. And she had uh, no recourse to operations uh, at the time. Uh, and she was quite obviously overloaded. Uh, well, she did a really good job, so it's probably wrong to say she was overloaded, but she had much more to deal with than she would have done if she'd gone back to her point of origin as soon as they realised the captain wasn't uh, fully fit. Agreed. Mm. How long of a flight is that? Probably a long Does time. anyone know? Like 10 hours, 12 yeah. hours, 11 hours. Yeah. Well, I all boxes, I'm surprised there wasn't um, an augmented crew telling yeah. us what the uh, CDB and CCPs stand for. Uh, Commandant de bord and chef de cabine principal. Yeah. And another interesting comment from Jim Fulton. Another interesting comment from Jim Fulton. Corsair previously operated... Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, well, in, in, in addition to hug, they had... Sun, sea, sun, love, and... Sex. And sex. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also, Love, 47, sexy son. We're looking and at the Nigel, registration. Nigel, uh, holiday company. And Nigel thinks that sounds like a good holiday. <laughs> Nigel says, son, see, love, and yeah. sex sounds like a good holiday. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, the, we're, we're, uh, yeah. For those of you um, not following along um, on the visuals, um, the 
um, identification. What was put those back up there? I can't find I it will. on the. I'm uh, coming back. I'm thanks. Coming back. Uh, the registration numbers of the 747-400s at Corsair are Foxtrot Hotel S U N, Foxtrot Hotel S E A, Foxtrot Hotel L O V, and Foxtrot Hotel S E X. So that's what we're talking and about. And I there. believe they've got a Foxtrot Hotel P O X as well. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never mind. Right. Not even, not even going to say um, what I that, what came into my mind. I think we should move on. Okay. That's all I need to say about. <laughs> okay. So, um, Captain Nick and Doctor Steph, I don't think either of you were on the episode where we um, talked about a. Uh, an incident that occurred at San Carlos in Northern California, uh, KSQL, uh, the identifier of the airport in the San Francisco Bay Area, where um, the a controller kind of got a little um, uh, snarky, testy, uh, testy, feisty, whatever, Nasty. very basically, uppity. very uppity and uppity. inappropriate. Like yes, all that, With all that flight stuff. school, flight school planes. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, this. I guess there was a flight school there, or maybe more than one. Uh, but they were up there, and and there was a um, student pilot on a check ride, an FAA ex- uh, designated designated examiner was uh, oh, I, I heard you guys talk about this though yeah and uh, so it was just all around not a not a very gr- good it. situation and the air traffic controller just yeah was out of out oh, of bounds and uh, so <laughs> uh, we have um, a reprise of uh, I, I think uh, correct uh-huh. me if I'm wrong Liz but I think that this is the same controller yeah, I think it sounded sounds like, like it, it was, his voice yeah. sounds very similar to that incident that we talked about on a previous show. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, have a listen to this one. From Bass Aviation, Real Aviation Communications, liveatc.net as well. Here we go. San Carlos. So, zero, zero, Papa, traffic and following is at your uh, 2 o'clock yeah, and uh, 2 miles entering right down when you're number 3. Number three, looking for number two traffic uh, on the right downwind, 610. Actually, number four. 610, Papa, traffic you're following is at the cement plant at the Cessna 152. Reduce your speed. Reducing speed, looking for traffic at the cement plant, 610, Papa. 610, Papa, you have traffic in sight there just uh, east of the cement plant on the right base. Still looking. 610, Papa. It's important to even find these guys as quickly as possible. 6100 Papa, I still don't have them in sight. Uh, can I exit the pattern? 6100 Papa, that traffic's at your 1 o'clock on a right base. Just make a normal right turn. This will be a full stop landing. Normal right turn for full stop landing. 6100 Papa. If you want to go somewhere else, sir, I'm working too hard. No problem. 6100 Papa, no traffic here falling up. This is a bit of work. I need for you to turn back wow. to the downwind. Copy, turn it downwind. 610, Sierra Papa. Tower 610, Sierra Papa. We're still negative on that traffic. Uh, we turned right there because that's what you told us to do. 610, Sierra Papa. Traffic is falling is at your 1 o'clock and a half mile. For traffic now, Sessa 0, Sierra Papa. Traffic is in sight now, yes. Yeah. We were looking directly into the sun to find them, so you got to kind of manage your expectations for what we're able to do. Gotcha. 
back to managed mines. It's full stop landing only. You're done. Runway 30, number 3, clear to land. 30, clear to land. And yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it later. No, there's nothing to talk about. Oh, yes, there is. And Tower 61005, I totally understand. You're working really hard. Uh, we appreciate everything you do, uh, but I need you to mark the tape in case we have to talk about this later. Zero Sierra Poppy, you can call the company, sir. Runway 30, clear to land. Zero Sierra, clear to land. Still, you need to mark the tape. There's, there's no tape. We're in the 21st century. Six one zero zero Papa, taxi parking this frequency. Taxi to parking this frequency six one zero zero Papa. And just so I can be clear, you're terminating our flight. Zero zero Papa, you can go to Palo Alto, sir. I'm working eight hours by myself today. I just don't have time to work this hard for a student. I'm sorry. I go to Palo Alto. We'll work it out. That's fine. We'll terminate. Okay. Palo Alto is just down the road a bit, um, also in the Bay Area. Um, yeah, this this guy needs to find employment uh, in some other different line of work. Different line of work. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a, also a um, like a contract tower. It is a contract a, tower. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's why he said contact the company. Contact it, the company. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like uh, your air traffic control in UK, where it's uh, a private. Uh, it's not a government thing anymore, is not it? Not FAA. Uh, it's not. Yeah. In other words, here in the U.S., a contract tower would be non-FAA tower. Right. Okay. And there are there's quite a few of them out there that are non-FAA operated towers. You, yeah. You okay, to. but I mean the. They still obey the same rules Correct. as all the other air traffic controllers. They're supposed to, so yes. For, okay. I, I don't know all the differences for the most part. I mean, in terms of how, in terms of flight operation and all of that, yes. But in terms of workloads, there's differences. Oh. Uh, so they might have work longer hours? I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay. This might I be mean, a good question from what he said, it sounds it sounds like it, but I don't know if I can rely upon yeah. whatever he's saying as being yeah. true. I'm aware there's differences, and I, I don't know all of them, especially not off the top of my head right now. But um, might be worth looking at. UH Blackhawk has a good comment here, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Our uh, live audience says uh, this is uh, behavior is very different from the Cincinnati uh, airport controller. Yeah. Yep. Certainly is. Um, so, uh, yeah, just tell, you know, like telling somebody, instructing them that they are finished and they were going to make this a full stop. I'm thinking, wow, okay, you're just, you're, that's why he at the very end of it, I guess he's getting in his mind how he's going to fill out the paperwork here because, so let me get this straight. You are terminating my flight. And then that's when he says, well, unless you want to go down the road to, uh, uh, to uh, Palo Alto, Palo Alto um, then I can arrange for you to do that. But uh, you need to stay out of my airspace because I've, it's been a long, hard I'm day for busy. me, and I don't, I don't have to, you know, time to deal with students and all this kind of stuff. So that's just again another um, example of this particular controller's uh, very inappropriate uh, behavior in my mind. Yeah, indeed. Well, when a student has an instructor beside them, what's the difference between that and any other aircraft? I mean, the instructor is there to provide the uh, professional or, you know, experienced hands at the control if required. Uh, what, what, what extra work does it give the controller? I don't understand. 
I, I don't either. And I think maybe he was a little frustrated because he kind of screwed up, in my opinion, by yeah. basically turning them on the final and there wasn't adequate spacing. And he said, well, I'm just doing what you told us to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's... Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got the impression that he, the guy was working at the limit of his capacity. Uh, perhaps uh, his capacity was reduced through fatigue, so he needed to you know, lower his workload for a while until he got to grips with it. But it's just that when you're trying to make those kind of decisions, when you really have no spare capacity, uh, it's very easy to lose your rag, make mistakes, get angry. The emotions run very hot. Yeah, you know, and it's clearly task saturated to the point of not being able to control emotions. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you'd really have to, uh, you'd have to listen to the exchange um, from the last (laughs) live ATC. Yeah, I I did hear, I did hear the last one as well. Yeah. Uh, And then when you hear this one, I mean, so it's just like, okay, this is, that's enough. I think this guy needs to be fired. He was just getting nasty about that mark. If it's the same guy, is it the same guy? Yeah, it sounds like the same one. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. Yes. I mean, and the fact that it's now hitting the internet, uh, someone's going to start asking questions. I think they need to. It's like making comments like, okay, this is the 21st century. There's no Tate. Oh, come on. This is just a term that we use. You know, we're talking about, you know, filming things. And I mean, obviously, (laughs) technology has changed, but you know what he means, you know. But how to to, turn a student off, like, oof. Yeah. It's just not. Okay. And the other well, thing is that when you are really busy and overworked, entering into a what is a relatively long conversation about what the problem is, completely inappropriate, actually, from both of them, uh, because uh, you just need to go, let's talk on the well, ground. That was a comment on the That's last show that say. they were clogging up the frequency. Yeah. yeah the uh, Again, you'll, um, I'll send you a link to the um, the one that we discussed on the last episode um, and uh, – You'll, it was even worse. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, let's go anyway. to something nice like getting to know us. Shall we do that, Liz? Yeah. Okay, let's do this. Time for getting to know us. We've got a lot to talk about, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's a time of the show where we kind of get all caught up with what everybody has been up to since the last time they were on the show. And uh, let's see, which one of you would uh, like to go first? Oh, Steph, I want to hear all about Yeah, I want to hear what Steph's going on, too. So Steph was, uh, yeah, she was jetting across the globe, trotting, literally, uh, over there in Berlin, I believe, right? It was Berlin, yes. So that's actually the second time I've run that marathon. I know. Um, Had to go back and redeem myself from uh, 2017 when I had had a great run in 2017, but I was... um, let's just say very much not as serious about um, running marathons. It was kind of just to do for, for fun. I would do, you know, one, maybe two a year. Um, And uh, still had a a really decent run back in 2017, but it was the only one now of my world marathon majors that my time did not start with a three. So I wanted to go and and improve on that a little bit. So we'll get to that in a minute too. But um, yeah, it was, um, um, I'll start by saying too, man, I just, you know, been, you guys know, I've been super busy, um, 
all summer long, lots of work. Um, that's cut into a lot of free time of mine that I'm used to having and uh, running is, was another thing that took quite a bit of a hit. So I was still getting workouts in and training in, but not nearly as much as I wanted to. So I wasn't really sure how I was actually going to feel on, on race day, but um, race itself actually went really well. The weather in Berlin was lovely. It was like upper 60s Fahrenheit. Um, I don't know what that is in Celsius. Low 20s, maybe? Upper teens? Upper teens, yeah. Yeah. And um, kind of overcast to start the day. Just some some fog, basically. Or not fog, but low clouds. Kind of broke up a um, couple hours into the race. Got a little warm on the back end, but... Ooh, um, warm on your back such end? Such a... Such a nice day for uh, so really nice conditions for for running. Sorry, I'm not used to hearing Liz in my ears Sorry, all the time. She, her comments are great. <laughs> People are wondering why world. I'm laughing at nothing. <laughs> um, no, it's it's good. It's good. I enjoy it. Um, so yeah, the race itself actually went really well. Race day was really nice. Um, great weather. Um, felt really good. Um, surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, I've done quite a few marathons at this point, so um, I almost feel like at this point I get out there to. Um, to race day and and my body just kind of knows it's like oh okay we're gonna run a marathon today this is what we're doing here we go um very even consistent pacing about eight minutes 30 seconds per mile the whole way um i actually set my watch in kilometers um that was a first for me because um berlin is a race where there's there are no mile markers on the course i don't think i don't think i saw a single one um i don't think there were any in japan either which makes good sense but um, it's just easier to keep more consistent pacing when you're, you know, uh, it's funny how our minds work. You can see the kilometer marker coming up and you kind of want to know what your pace is as, at that point. So I calculated it out and figured I wanted to be somewhere, somewhere around five to five thirty pace per kilometer. Um, so I was able to hold that pretty consistently the whole way. And that felt really good. So really pleased with the race. Finish time was three hours, 45 minutes and a couple of seconds, I think. Um, so that was, that was excellent. Better than I expected to do, actually, and hoping to carry that forward. Thank you. Thank you. Nice job. Carry that forward to yeah, Chicago. Yeah, great and... time. Great time, Steph. Thanks. Thanks. Um, it's either my third or fourth fastest marathon time and really wasn't expecting to do quite that well. I was hoping for just anything under four hours. That would have been really, really Really happy with that. Um, it was so fast, you had time for a couple of extra beers. <laughs> what, on the course? <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming During afterwards, straight into yeah. the brewery. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I don't know if I've talked about this here before, but I have a really hard time drinking beer right after a long run like that. Um, oh. I have to give it about a couple hours usually. So um, I was actually pretty busy this go-around in Berlin. Um, so... I've talked about before. I think I have a, a coach now. Um, does mo we do all the coaching online or through an app? But um, those of us who um, are, are members of this coaching group, we've all become friends online on Facebook. Um, we have a you know a, a group that communicates regularly, and I think we had seven or eight um, runners in Berlin. So that was that was really nice, um, including one of our runners from Poland. Um, he's run Berlin a lot, obviously, and he's Excellent. he's really fast. He ran a two forty nine, two forty eight. Wow! Um, just turned fifty years old, so good for good for you, Robert. That was awesome. Um, and then a lot of really good good races on on Marathon Sunday. So 
And so I had a chance to meet up with all of them. Um, a lot of them I've known online for, it was kind of like our podcast community, you meet people um, online, but then it's so much nicer to see them in person, right? So I had a chance to meet up with a lot of them in person and spend some time and go to various uh, shakeout runs and, and meet up for coffee or a beer or food. Um, so that was, that was great. Um, and also my, uh, uh, my, one of my aunts was running. So, um, after the race, I collected all of my stuff, um, got my, my poncho, took my timing chip off my shoe, which this is like the only marathon in the world. I think that still uses timing chips on shoes, but <laughs> so you have to like sit down, unlace your shoe. And this is not the easiest thing to do after you've just run 26.2 miles. Like squatting is not a, a fun motion. Um, Returned my timing chip, got on the uh, the train, and went back to the hotel, changed, and then went back out to the course to to cheer on my aunt in the last couple of kilometers of her race. Um, she's 76, and I think she ran wow. six hours Excellent. and 15 wow. minutes. Yeah, she did great. Um, so it was good to see her out there. Um, my uncle was out on the course, too. He was supposed to run, but he actually just had surgery not too long ago, a knee replacement. So he was not cleared to, to get back to running yet. And then... Um, I think he saw me around kilometer 12. He was on the course spectating and um, didn't do any, you know, um, meetup podcast style stuff. But um, I did see private pilot Tillman um, I put in a plug for his wonderful um, circus hotel and hostel and, and brewery. Um, and I'm sorry, there's a great comment from my whole bottom. Oh, let's sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Liz is laughing and I'm just going to throw this in here and then I'm going to get back to Tillman and his wonderful hotel. But um, when you finish running a marathon and you still, you realize you still have 20 minutes of the APG episode left. <laughs> that was from, that was from one of our audience members, I haul boxes. Yeah. Good ones. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yeah. Um, but yes, I did get to see Tillman. Um, he was pretty busy all weekend too. He had some family stuff going on, but um, seeing as I was staying at the um, hotel where he's one of the owners, which is the Circus Hotel, um, in the, I say Mitte, is that right, Nick? You probably know better than me. I can't remember yeah, exactly where Rosenthaler, it was. Rosenthaler Plots. Yes, that's yeah. that's it. Um, great hotel, awesome area, part of town too. Lots of stuff going oh, on, yeah, restaurants and, and yeah. things to do. Um, very central to everything, so can highly recommend. Um, had a chance to meet up with him for for a cup of coffee in the morning on Monday after the race, so it was great to catch up. Um, glad to hear, Tillman, that you're still doing quite a bit of flying as well. I know he's been busy with family and work stuff as well. And 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 I was going well. Henry um, in our community had contacted me. I met up with him previously, definitely in Berlin, and I'm trying to think if we met somewhere else as well. Um, but unfortunately, we couldn't quite make our schedules meet up uh, or line up to to meet up. So, promised Henry that I shall have to come back to Berlin so we can can catch up again in person. And um, yeah, flight over very uneventful. Um, the best way to do it out of Charlotte is Charlotte, London, um, and then on to Berlin. Um, I was hoping maybe to catch. Uh, Adam Spink at Heathrow if he was working, but alas, he was he was not. Um, so have to catch up again there some other time as well. And uh, on the way back, two things I actually want to talk about. Go back to the uh, some of the news articles that we talked about at the beginning. First one um, that was my first time going to the new um, Berlin airport, um, Brandenburg uh, airport. And wow, there's some long runways there. Um, we mentioned it in 
What was that? Uh, John Wayne. No, not the John Wayne one. We talked about, oh, we didn't get to, um, we didn't do the news article. That's why I see I read, I did some, uh, some preparation for today. Um, we had a news article that we didn't read about um, uh, KLM City Hopper we'll E190. Save it for next week. Yeah, we'll save, uh, we'll save that for next week. But they took a uh, intersection departure, which we also did, um, which I noticed. And I went, huh, okay, intersection departure. And then I, it just got me interested and I pulled up the, um, the airport diagram and saw that the runway that we were departing on was 13,000 feet long. So 4,000 meters, quite a long runway there. Um, and then on the way back, we were talking about uh, the flight, uh, the, the Delta flight going back into Atlanta, going through the rough uh, weather and lots of folks being injured and possibly being out of their seats still. Um, so typically my experience on these uh, across the pond flights has been, especially going west to east, leaving in the middle of the day, arriving in the afternoon or evening sometime. There's, you know, kind of an initial lunch service after you board the aircraft or after you, after you depart, um, probably about an hour or so after departure that lasts for like an hour or so. And then there's quite a bit of time, downtime, watch, you know, movies, sleep, whatever it is. And then somewhere a couple, couple of hours to usually a couple hours before you land, there's another like light meal service and beverage service. Um, but man, this time around, it seemed kind of late. You know, we were definitely within an hour and a half of landing. And then they came around with an additional like small meal, not just like a snack and another beverage service. Um, so we were definitely descending as they were um, finishing up that service and cleaning it up. Um, and yeah, if there had been weather coming into Charlotte, that would have been not a great time to have done that whole meal service. So I was thinking about that when we were doing the news. Um, it it definitely didn't get cleaned up until we were quite close to landing. So mm. there were a lot of a lot of folks up and about in the cabin, and even a lot of passengers kind of up and about because you know you eat something, get a, a beverage in you, and then you've got to go to the bathroom again. You know, um, and a lot of folks aren't really paying attention to where you are in that in our flight plan. So, you know, it says like up on the screens and stuff, how much time you have until landing, but that doesn't really mean a lot. I think to a lot of folks, you know, if, if people are still up and about and meal service is happening, Oh, there's plenty of time to get up and go to the bathroom or brush my teeth or whatever, take a walk about. So that just seemed like it happened later than usual this time around. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe I noticed it because I was quite hungry at this point, having just run a marathon two days ago and I knew there was another meal service coming and I was like ravenous by six <laughs> hours into the Come flight, on. even though I ate once already. <laughs> yeah. You're entitled so, to that food. Yeah. But it just, you know, just is a little bit different, you know, long haul flights, I think, versus domestic flights in terms of when some of those um, cabin service things occur. I'd say actually it's not uncommon and not uncommon either. Um you know, when you're going the other direction across the pond on an overnight flight, um, breakfast service is often often quite close to landing because you want to give folks enough time to sleep as long as possible. So that's typically happening pretty close to arrival. Well, well done, Steffi. Right. So. All right. But yeah, that was um, Berlin Adventure and back to work today. Yay. So got home at like... Uh, any, uh, any after effects? No, I feel great. Actually, if anything, good, um, brilliant. I was talking with one of my um, running friends and teammates who I saw in uh, 
Berlin, and we'll see you again in Chicago. Um, I've been dealing kind of with this pesky ankle tendonitis, posterior tibial tendonitis, for like over a year now. And I could still notice it, still feel it in the corrals at the start line um, in Berlin. And then once I started running, didn't notice it at all. And it seems to feel fine right now. Like I haven't, it hasn't bothered me a bit. So I'm not sure what Mm -hmm. I did or what changed. Because I've definitely been running on it. I've run races on it, and it's it's huh. just been kind of there. You're actually drinking the right lubricant. <laughs> German beers. That's what. And that great Berlin air, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Captain Nick. Yeah, Captain Nick. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh, you weren't with us last uh, week, and I'm not sure if it was an authorized absence or not. But uh, maybe you can uh, <laughs> plead your case. It was. I oh. had. I had the. The uh, producer's permission. <laughs> no, uh, we did our our sort of annual uh, go to the seaside for a week or so. Um, it was just a week uh, um, last week. And um, we decided rather than driving all the way down to Devon, the purpose of this holiday is not just to get a break, but to take the dogs to the seaside because dogs and seasides always seem to go together so um we went to a little place in dorset just a couple of hours away from us here a little village called chaldon herring and uh, I, I was intrigued by the name so i did work out um chaldon uh in the old english two separate words means um calves on the hill that's where they used to um graze uh, young um, calves so that they could eat them. And uh, the land was owned by a family called Herring. That's in the Doomsday Book. So uh, that's how they worked that out. Anyway, it's in in Dorset. It's a lovely little village. Um, That's our house, our little cottage that we rented, um, thatched roof and all so all very pleasant and close enough to the sea for us to to drive out and go uh let the dogs paddle uh and um we had a a really good time very pleasant time nice the only hassle was uh, yeah there's rugger it was a bit windy and uh one rain day was completely washed out uh and then but actually the weather was pretty good considering um i did um managed to uh, slip up on a slipway which i thought was very appropriate yeah. <laughs> um and uh landed very heavily and uh, smashed my phone and uh, ripped a hole in my elbow but um it was perfect timing actually because having uh, smashed my phone they now bought out a new one so <laughs> i've got a new, a new iPhone, iphone 15 on order uh, they've, they've sold like almost, cakes. I almost ordered one today, but then saw that I'd have to wait a month to get it anyway. So I'm just going to... You got yours already, Jeff? Oh, look at that. Yeah, yeah. Jeff's got his. Look at that. Yeah. I did order my new watch today, though. Hey, I, cool. It's, it's been four years since I've had a new phone. So... Yeah. yeah right. Well, the, my, my, the phone I sat on was an X, so a 10. So they've been... This is the oh. fifth upgrade since then. I've managed yeah. to resist... I almost ordered one um, as soon as you could order one last week, and it would have arrived while I was out of town. So I decided oh, okay. not to do that. That's a shame. 
yeah, yeah. Well, I should get mine at the end of October, according to the timing in the UK. And the only other thing that happened was um, I got a, a, I don't say a panic call, but I got a urgent request. Uh, there's a lovely chi- chap called Matt Sodden who um, does uh, Matt's Pilot Crew Talks, uh, a monthly interview. And um, he... Um, invited me to fill in for a pilot who had uh, dropped out of his interview slot. Uh, And I don't quite sure how he found out that I was the sort of bloke that would do this. But anyway, we had a very pleasant Zoom chat um, (laughs) with him and his his audience. Not a huge audience, but perfectly uh, nice, actually. I I almost prefer speaking to a smaller group because uh, it becomes a bit more intimate or as you know, however intimate Zoom can be. It's much nicer, uh, perhaps, with an audience in a room. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was great fun. And uh, I'm going to put the details of uh, Matt's Facebook page. Uh, All he charges for people to listen to the interviews are £10 a year, I think, the fee. And that just covers his the cost of his uh, um, doing the Zoom renting i don't know how much it costs him to do a uh, a zoom thing but anyway that's it um and uh that's that was that was it we had a very pleasant it was supposed to be an hour or an hour and a half and it went on for three hours so we had lots oh, of questions APG effect and uh, <laughs> absolutely yeah uh and uh had, had great fun with that so um if anyone does enjoy listening to uh pilot stroke crew interviews Taking i mean he's had um uh, anyway refueling Sorry. tanker crews he's had pilots from all sorts of uh, air forces and aircraft so he gets a great variety uh and sadly you've missed the one with me so he doesn't rec- as i say he doesn't record them so uh you, you know what if you miss it you miss it and that's it i like i like that pilot stroke crew is that what you just said indeed it is okay yes i did well or or should i say slash uh, forward slash or just slash how about yeah as long as you don't say pilot slash crew (laughs) okay well we wouldn't want to slash him in the back oh that's 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 even worse isn't it Well, anyway, that's been my week. Yeah. Quite a busy week, actually. What with that and tidying up uh, today's plane tale, which uh, I'm really looking forward to. I hope you enjoy it. It's the second half of Matt, uh, my spacecraft engineer friend, uh, his talk about uh, you know rocket, rocket science. Oh, good. Yeah, well, we better get on with that soon because we're running out of time. Jeff, Ooh. you've done a lot of stuff too. Uh, did I? Have I done a lot of stuff? stuff uh, Liz I don't know I, concerts and stuff? I, I've been you know doing my uh my singing thing singing. but I think that when did we do the show last week you, um, you've been to one but Wednesday. you were going to another yeah. one so I did a couple of uh I went to a couple of live um uh concerts I guess or gigs or whatever uh I mentioned that uh, the five o'clock mass that I sing in on Sundays uh, we have a couple of uh guitar players that um uh, play are still involved in playing with uh, uh, various bands, and so uh, a couple of them last week, and then uh, on Sunday night uh, after that five o'clock mass, we um, I went with my choir director uh, and her family over to um, 
the uh, Woodstock uh, Amphitheater in Woodstock, Georgia, uh, where her husband, uh, Dr. Chuck, um, he's the uh, director of the Cobb New Horizons Symphonic Band, and they had a nice concert uh, there in the amphitheater. It was a be- beautiful weather. And uh, yeah, so that's that's really the only thing uh, in addition to the singing that I normally do. And um, Nick, we forgot to ask about your boo-boo. Um, or no, we didn't. You you told us about your boo-boo, didn't you? About the spillway. I, I did. I, I yeah. have got a bit but, of a scar. No, I was showing yeah. it for Nigel because he got the arm wrong. He said left. Oh, ah, right okay. Arm. That's what you're doing. Okay. But, I, I saw you in my peripheral I vision. Completely, going, like, uh, <laughs> but, but we did. <laughs> we did that. forget to ask Nick to talk about the cover art. Oh, that's right. We do need to talk about oh, cover do that art. After from, we finished uh, with Jeff. Well, I'm I'm finished. I'm finished. I tell you. Oh, I'm you? finished. <laughs> finished. That was um, quick. In more yep. ways than one. That's All right, what she said. Stick it up then. As All right. Well, well, she said. Okay, so I'm going to, uh, if you don't mind, Liz, I'm going to go ahead and share it so we can do the zoom in thing. Oh yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's all right. Now I wasn't part of the show, so I just had a, a, a suggestion to work with a title, a suggested sort of title, mm-hmm. which was actually um, <laughs> completely different to the one we ended up with, <laughs> but the the idea. Uh, was to do something. Well, I'm not sure who came up with that Brazilian. title idea. That was. <laughs> uh, I think we were we were doing some fooling around kind of thing, but I don't think anybody was actually taking me seriously about that as a title. Oh, but, okay. I I assume that was it. That no, was, no, 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 no. Uh, well, I, Nick did. So. Anyway, yeah. um, we wanted a, uh, a landing strip in the jungle uh, or a Brazilian. Um, somehow represented Maybe I should in be discussing this. Form. Do we need to mute <laughs> Captain Nick and I can take over? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> no, I'm enjoying this explanation. This is great. Okay, keep, keep going. Please continue. Keep going. Okay, so I had to try and produce this aforementioned landing strip, uh, which I, I did my best, and we've got a, a, a nice... Um, uh, um, Harry Beaver. Um, uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family. I was hoping you were um, going to play the other clip. Oh, my God. Anyway. Um, okay. Nice uh, Beaver. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Well, I guess that's uh, like this. Nice Beaver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, um, uh, there you go. With a, a razor of, of the Farrell de Pusso, uh coming in to shave it. Guys. Um which I thought was very appropriate. No, 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 no. So uh, this is a, let, what me, that let me take over. Is, there is a landing strip <laughs> okay. uh, in the Brazilian Amazon, and the uh, guys that were with us on the Federal de Pueso, uh Aviation Pod, Brazilian Aviation Podcast. Uh, that means landing light in Portuguese. And so there is their little logo, their airplane coming in, and see how their landing light is illuminating the very nice little airstrip in. The uh, oh, Amazon. is that what that is? Okay, yes. that's very good. And, nice. uh, I like and that's that. exactly I like why your explanation better than mine. That's exactly why you came up with this artwork, uh, Captain. Nick. <laughs> all right, uh, we, we're all straight with okay. that, right? Okay, and uh, yeah, yeah, well, Bob just thinks it's that. very nicely forested there. Um, all right, um, <laughs> yeah. let me see about Did trying you find to the show number zoom Jeff, Jeff in. Well, first of, of all, the- I yeah, I'm not going to. Um, so look at that at the um. Oh, I can't wait for this um, 
explanation from Captain no, Nick. No, no, don't go there. Uh, oh, so that, there is our Acme logo. They already gave the an explanation. Just move on. Yeah, just yeah. Yeah. it's hidden in the folds of the undergrowth because we yeah. know it's very hard to find. <laughs> okay. And uh, let me go away from that. Uh, That's and... the logo we're talking about. Okay, our okay. logo. Okay, okay, okay. Pink okay. this week. Yeah, okay. Um... And uh, let's see. We're going to zoom in a little bit more here. And on the, not quite the horizon, but on the uh, the ridge line, uh, you can see ah, a very faint uh, numbers on their side, five, eight, six. I thought that might fool a few people because they're sort of halfway hidden and mm -hmm. leaning over. Well, anyway, which, yes, it's, five, it's, eight, it's uh, kind of weird because normally I have a tough time finding this stuff and I found, found them right away. I guess this you week. paid great attention good, good to that you. art well done. there, Jeff. Yes. Yeah. All right. Examining in great detail. Oh, All yes, right. there's a lot of inspection happening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, coffee fun time. Okay. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about this uh, coffee fun thing that we like to talk about because it's your way to uh, support the show financially. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, the APG Coffee Fund, as I mentioned, your way to show, to what? To support our show financially, if you have the resources to do that. A couple of different ways to do it. Uh, one is the Coffee Fund Classic Method which is uh, basically a PayPal donation page uh, where you can make a one-time, two-time, every now and then kind of contribution. Or you can be, uh, you can set it up as a recurring donation as well. Uh, so that's, again, the uh, classic method. Although I think it's preferable if you're going to make um, continuing recurring, uh, recurring uh contributions that you become a patron of the show via patreon.com and uh, information about that is uh, also on our website airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee but essentially it's where you pledge a certain amount per episode per creation and um, yeah it, it even if you just have a little bit to give it really adds up when many of you do it so we've got a bunch of people already who are patrons of our show and so I think that you should consider joining them. Uh, again, uh, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Captain, incoming message. Okay. Well, if you were with us on our live recording last week, you know that... I tried to address this piece of feedback, and after several attempts of uh, technical difficulties, I just gave up because the uh, the internet gods were basically telling me to shut up. Shut up, Jeff. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and try this again. This is some audio feedback. So let me uh, set this up a little bit. Uh, what show was it? It was uh, number 583. We're on 587 now, so four shows ago, I guess. Uh, we covered a news item uh, regarding, uh, well, this is not the headline of the one that we actually discussed. It was a Washington Post article, but uh, essentially it was the story regarding 
uh, how the FAA and the VA are trying to resolve some discrepancies with uh, people who have claimed disabilities but weren't uh, being very forthcoming uh, when they were filling out their paperwork for their FAA medical certificates. And uh, so um, let's go ahead and hear what how CJ responded to our coverage of that article in the Washington Post. Hello, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, Macho Man, Producer Liz, and the rest of the PG crew. Zerbus CJ here, and I wanted to respond to the episode 583 news article about 5,000 pilots being investigated for hiding serious health issues. To be clear, what is the problem is pilots not reporting that they're receiving VA disability compensation when they apply for an FAA medical. may not have been your intent, but it came across as if some of y'all were saying that no pilots with disabilities bad enough to be awarded a VA disability compensation should be ever given that Class 1 medical. There's a block on the application form where an applicant is asked whether they were receiving a medical disability with a yes or no answer. A yes answer is supposed to be explained further. If pilots were saying no when they actually were receiving disability payments, then yes, this is now being caught, and answering no is falsifying a government record. Pilots who are answering yes and are explaining that the disability compensation is from the VA and why are, as far as I know, meeting the intent and aren't the problem. I know some people don't understand how a pilot, especially a pilot in the 121 or airline world, could have a disability and yet still be safe to operate an aircraft with 200 people behind the cockpit door. However, the FAA's stance on this is that for certain conditions, as long as the disability is properly managed, the flying public is safe with that pilot in command of the aircraft. One common example mentioned in the article is sleep apnea. As I understand it, once a pilot participates in a sleep study and can prove that they're actively managing the apnea, the FAA says it's okay for them to operate an aircraft. Similarly, I have a friend who's currently an ACME airline pilot and a retired military pilot who has disability compensation for PTSD from his service. The FAA requires him to submit therapist notes as part of his medical application to prove that the PTSD is being managed, and he's being issued a Class 1 ever since he got the diagnosis. He also gets disability compensation for the PTSD. I think some people may be also confused about why a pilot who's able to manage a disability should be compensated. I can't really answer that, but it's currently the law in the U.S. The VA is trusted to ensure the veterans claiming disability actually have a disability when they're being awarded a disability rating. I had to see a VA doc when I retired from the service to prove I had what I said I had. So, yes, veterans may be checking the boxes, as you said, but as long as they're informing the FAA that they're receiving disability, what's the problem? This discussion highlights we have two very different government agencies doing two different but overlapping things. We have one agency, the VA, who exists to ensure veterans are fairly compensated for service-connected injuries or conditions. Another agency, the FAA, existing, among other things, to make sure the filing public is safe. I think it's possible for both to happen, but so far it is relying on pilots self-reporting conditions, and yes, some pilots are going to fail to report because they think it could ruin their chances of getting approved. But I don't think the vast majority of veteran pilots are, quote, dishonest people trying to get free money while still holding cushy airline jobs, end quote. I agree with Macho Man that the process could be less painful, but unfortunately the pilot isn't really the customer, it's the flying public. And Captain Jeff... 
Even if you didn't apply for benefits years ago, it's not too late if you have something going on that is service-connected. You served your country, and your country wants to compensate you for your service. So, blue skies and talents, Douglas. All right, yay! I was uh, not clear about that whole VA thing as far as it applies to me and my service, but as far as I know, the only disability that I have is my brain fog, and that uh, is not... I think, uh, assignable to my service in the military, in the U.S. Air Force back in the 80s. Um, so, CJ, man, we love you. But I honestly think you need to go back and listen to our discussion again, because I really don't know how you got the impression that what we were saying was that if you have a disability and you're claiming it from the VA, that that you shouldn't be flying for the airlines. That's that's not at all. In fact, if anything, that was what my point of being um, kind of passionate about the coverage of this article was the fact that the journalists uh, kind of conflated the idea that people having disabilities from their military service and flying for the airlines was unsafe, or maybe they kind of hinted it that they didn't straight say it. And the quote that you said about uh, people you know, having disabilities and, and lying about it or hiding it uh, uh, to because of their cushy airline jobs or forgot exactly what you said was a quote. Again, I listened up and thinking, well, when did, when did we say that? And uh, it was nothing that we said and nor was it anything that I went back and reread that article from the Washington Post. I didn't see that quote in there either. So I'm not, I think it may have been a case here of this is what you heard us saying, but it wasn't really what we said. Um, so my point, again, was that I think that there are a very, very small number, um, in a little bit more than a handful of of uh, pilots out there that were kind of being a little, um, trying to bend the rules a little bit and kind of not really fully disclose. I mean, like checking that box, yeah, I, I have a VA disability. But then the part where you're supposed to fill out the commentary about what it is that you are receiving disability benefits for, uh, wasn't filled out or uh, whatever. So I, I, you know, that's one of those things. It was more about the potential. I'm not saying it was fraud, but maybe, uh, miscommunication, uh, going on there. And, uh, there are a lot of, you know, uh, ways to blame various agencies and everything else uh, regarding this. And I kind of mentioned it when, in our coverage of this uh, four episodes ago when when uh, I've talked to people about this and they said that they were basically being told when they were getting out of the military, oh, yeah, you need to check this and this and this. And if you have anything going on, because, you know, that's money you're throwing away if you don't, you know, claim these things. And I didn't, I never said it was illegitimate. I'm just saying that if you're going to get compensation from the military for these things and you're going to go for an FAA class one medical to do your job at an airline or whatever uh, whatever your commercial uh, work is uh, flying that you need to be upfront about that as well so I, again I certainly didn't mean to apply or, or Nick Camacho and I uh, or I think um, Captain Nick were you on the you were on that episode too weren't you or not? I don't think I took much part in this particular one it was that sort of outside my experience yeah but you were there on the show so think, in other I words I think I was there we, on that show as well were you and as well okay yeah. uh, I think I was I don't remember uh, to be honest I have no idea what I might have said about it but it, even just listening back again to some of this now my thoughts go to um, you know to me it's just kind of symptomatic of our whole uh, 
some of the the underlying problems in the uh, system of obtaining medicals for pilots. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and uh, perhaps fear for folks that they should not. And I'm not talking about military things at all. I'm talking about purely on the civilian side of things, because that's all I can speak to. But just concern about, oh, if I think I have these symptoms, should I even go to the doctor to get worked up for it? Because I might be on medication that might spark a problem and I don't want to deal with it. And if I do have something, should I should I mention it? Do I have to mention all of it? There's just a lot of fear and uncertainty because, you know, this, uh, this is folks' livelihood. And if you have a condition that will prevent you from maintaining your livelihood, that's a, that's a big deal. So, um, you know, and there's not a good, uh, the, the system is notoriously slow at managing those things, even when there's a path forward through all of it. Um, and it's, uh, it's problematic. Yeah. And any of you out there and who, could be, could be improved significantly. Yeah. Any of you out there who either have experienced this personally or know people, uh, who are close to you that have gone through this kind of hassle, um, understand how this is broken, the system. And I think they are making an effort to fix it. I don't know how long it yeah. will take them, but it's something that is, 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 uh, they're working toward. And I think there are a lot of good people, honest people that are trying to get this thing fixed. So it's not the situation where you're afraid to disclose anything because you know, you might be out for six to months even get to treated a couple of years. Something that you should get treated for. Right. Or, you know, get compensation for something that you're clearly entitled to compensation exactly. for. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, uh, that's, that's perfectly fine. It's just, you know, so I guess I, I tried to make the point that I thought that the, the, the article itself and articles similar to it didn't quite grasp the, the whole point of what was happening here. It was more like, I can't believe these military pilots with these disabilities are actually flying passengers and everything. No, (laughs) you can't conflate the two. Yeah. So scariest moment ever. There was moderate turbulence on an air. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's typical, um, sensational headlines. Sadly, that is true. Why don't we do, why don't we do the plane tale next? What do you think? Everybody up to that? Ready? Sure. Oh, yep. Okay. Well, guess what time it is? Yay! It's this uh, week's episode of the Plane Tale, the Old Pilot's Plane Tales, and uh, this one is Rocket Man Part Two. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, Rocket Man Part Two. Today we continue with our interview of Matt, spacecraft engineer with a long history of work in the spacecraft industry. And in particular, we're asking him about the early generations of telecommunications satellites. Uh, the transistors that were involved in the Telstar were, shall we say, baby transistors. We, we were at the early age of electronic development into transistors and the like compared to today things like oc71s now it's just a number but it is a device which is a transistor which has quite a good gain on it and it's got a little aluminium cap on it if you heat the aluminium cap and unglue the glue and you take the cap off you find yourself looking at a glass bead with a germanium or silicon chip inside it which believe it or not is affected by light 
it's the idea of that is that to give you an example of, of just how far we have come and just how amazing it was that this Telstar actually worked. The command uplink and the command downlink, because a spacecraft, no matter what way you look at it, spacecraft satellite is two completely separate devices. One they call the payload. That is the bit that makes you the money. That's the bit that's going to give you your television channel and your telephone calls. Sitting connected to it, but separate from it, is the telemetry and command. The bit which monitors what's going on with the payload, monitors what's going on with the electronics in the satellite or spacecraft, and forms a link back down to Earth so that you and I can sit there and look at how healthy it is, what the batteries are doing, what the charge on the batteries is like, what the output power of the payload is, whether this part of the receiver is working. And where possible, um, you build redundancy into the spacecraft or satellite so that if some part fails, you can operate a number of switches and bring in the new part and switch out the old part that's failed. If you look at Telstar, there wasn't very much of that. It was put it up there, and if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. But the one thing that about Telstar 1 and Telstar 2 was that they were put up there as experiments. They were not designed to last a long time. It was an experiment, an expensive experiment, as to whether or not we could prove that satellites could work in communications. And not only did it work, it survived an exceedingly long time, and they were actually taken down by, believe it or not, radiation. Causes outside the uh, satellite itself. In other words, if the satellite had not been interfered with by some other means, it would probably be still there today if it hadn't dropped out of its orbit and fallen down and burned up. It was an amazing piece of equipment. Basically, it was a ball. There were, there were a number of things in the design and without getting too technical, if you look at something like a gyro, you pick up this, remember your little gyros that you started with a string. If you spin that gyro fast, it will maintain its position on a pinpoint. If you want to turn around and put something up into space, where there is nothing to stop it doing anything at all, rolling, drifting or anything, if you want it to be stable, you're going to have to spin it like a gyro or put a gyro on board. Now, we didn't have the technology to realise that we could turn around and put gyros on board things and make them stable by the effect of the gyro internally. Not in free space, anyway. So we thought, OK, let's spin it. To make it stable, we'll spin it at around 90 revs a minute. Why, uh, I don't know. I'm not a scientist in that aspect, and I'm not an engineer that's looked at that aspect, but it was decided that due to the, the size and weight of the spacecraft or satellite, if we spin it around 90 revs a minute, it will remain stable. In other words, it will behave like a gyro, and therefore whatever axis we have it on, from the top to the bottom, we'll call north and south, it would remain in that axis as long as it's spun. What is there to stop it spinning? Well, nothing. It's in space. So once you spin it up, it'll carry on spinning. Eventually, by nature of what space is and the gravity of the sun and the moon and the earth, it will fall into the Earth's atmosphere. But that's, for the purposes of this experiment, that was way beyond the requirements. It was not expected to last anything longer than a very short period of time. And in fact, it outlived its, its, its operational requirements by a long way. So if we spin it, we take this ball and we spin it round, 
we uh, end up with it being stable. Brilliant. How do we get signals back and forward from the Earth? Well, telemetry and command, in other words, managing the spacecraft, do we need big bandwidth, big expensive thing? No, we don't. We haven't got much to say, so we'll stick an antenna at the top for transmit and receive. And we don't need a lot of power, so we'll make it fairly low power, and that needs just a little tiny transistorized transmitter. And we'll bring the frequency down to something we can handle easily, down in amongst the amateur radio bands, around 130-odd megs, just below most of the amateur bands at two meters. So we can talk to it easily. We can listen to what's going on easily. Now, what about this television picture? Well, a television picture, regardless of the quality, and if you remember watching back then, the quality wasn't great, but it was a television picture and it was live and it was the first one. You need a bandwidth of around about 30 megahertz. They're a bit greedy. How do we get that down to Earth? Well, you need a bigger antenna and you need it to be pointing at the Earth, but you're spinning this thing. So how can you point an antenna at the Earth if you're spinning it? The answer is have a lot of antennas. So around the waistline of this ball spinning in space at 90 revs, we have 72 transmitting antennas and 40-odd receiving antennas. You need both because you've got to send a television picture up there to be received and then send it back down. But the difference being you send it up via a single point and you send it down to the whole of the Earth that the satellite can see. So anybody that can see that satellite can get that picture coming down. There's your first bit of global communications. This is the biggest step we ever made. All of a sudden, you can turn around and say, I can point a satellite signal up to the satellite from one place on the Earth. And because this thing is spinning and because the spacecraft is this far away from the Earth, it can see the whole of that face of the Earth, that half of the Earth. Therefore, anybody on the Earth can see that satellite. Therefore, anybody on the Earth can receive that picture course it was a very tiny signal by the time it came back to earth uplink was about two kilowatts in a directional signal the size of a pencil beam so that two kilowatts after it went through the atmosphere and got cut down and resisted by the atmosphere and so on arrived at the spacecraft at a very low level but still fairly strong coming out of the spacecraft was a signal from a valve and have i got some paperwork here i can tell you what the power was it couldn't have been more than a few watts anyway. Why could it only have been a few watts? Well, the spacecraft was running on solar panels and batteries, and you can't put a car battery into a satellite because it costs you too much to launch it. Because for every pound in weight you want to launch, you need two pounds of fuel to get it up there. So the power coming out of this travelling wave tube has got to be fairly small, which means by the time that signal gets down to Earth, it's about one hundredth of what it started at. So if you're transmitting to the space draft at 2 kilowatts and 5 kilowatts from Goonhilly, and you're... Goonhilly? Goonhilly, huge, huge dish. It's still there today. It's still working. It's still used. Uh, It is about 60 feet in diameter. It may even be more than that. Indeed it is. Goonhilly has a diameter of 85 feet. Um. It focuses, the whole idea is it's a parabolic antenna. Sitting about 40 feet away from the parabolic dish is the receiving and transmitting bit. Basically what happens is the signal coming from the spacecraft comes down, bounces into the dish. Because of the shape of the dish, it is focused to this single point. 
So you're getting gain. You're grabbing signals, little tiny bits of signal, and you're focusing it onto this single point. So you had masses of gain from this huge dish. Our scientists realized that this was going to be a tiny signal coming down. So you're losing huge amounts of your signal coming down. Now, sending a signal up, we've got five kilowatts. So that's the equivalent of five kettles boiling at once. So that's that's going up to the spacecraft. Coming down to the spacecraft, you've already got five thousandths of that signal coming out because you can't power anything bigger. So the amount now you take that five watts and you take that down and you reduce that, you need a big dish to So the technology on the ground to receive and transmit to the satellite was way, way, way more than the technology on the satellite itself. But that shouldn't diminish from the fact that the satellite itself was quite amazing. If you look at today, how many satellites are up there? Uh, They estimate just over 32,000, and it's growing. And they estimate it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. Satellite spacecraft, bits of stuff in space doing things. Our biggest problem that we are seriously looking at today is there is so much stuff up there, it's getting crowded. One of the things I was reading up on the other day was that if something comes out of its orbit and it hits something else, it's likely to be something like a domino pile. Hundreds of dominoes all lined up behind the other. You trigger one and they will start to fall. There are so many in low Earth orbit that... If something hits something, it's going to start this domino principle. It's just going to spread like wildfire and take out hundreds of bloody spacecraft up there. It's just crazy. You asked me to bring you back to the spacecraft and its waveguides. Oh, yes, yeah. In those days, we talked about thousands of megahertz. These days, we talk about gigahertz, which is the shortened version of the same thing. Um, Yeah, here we go. Um, The uplink was 6,425 million cycles per second, and the downlink, 4,200. We're now going up into the thousands of megahertz, which is very difficult to achieve. I mean... A traveling wave tube was a brilliant invention to get into microwaves, as we call it, because this this sort of frequency is just it's about half what your microwave oven is today. This was some incredible achievement uh, to put this sort of technology into space. A traveling wave tube is a valve. This this traveling wave tube was made of metal. It was by far the heaviest part on the on on the satellite, but it was really pushing the edges of technology in those days. To get into what went on, you would feed a very low-level signal in at one end. You would take a much higher-level signal out the other end in the principle of a valve. Um, How could you say it? Well, it required a small amount of current at a high voltage, so you had to develop the high voltage. You got gain by the fact that you passed a current through this valve and you then change the amount, the way the current is affected by feeding in the information you want along the side of the stream. Brilliant in its technology. I jump back to something else too, which is where the technology really takes off. You'll notice that I said 6,425 megahertz downlink, 4,200 megahertz uplink. They're totally different from each other. So if I transmit 
a video signal going up to the spacecraft being carried on a 6424.5 megahertz how do i get it back down to 4200 the simple answer is take the signal that i want off the carrier when i get it up there move it across and put it back on to the carrier to come down and in fact that's what you do so you actually take your television picture off the signal going up, move it across as a television video picture to the transmitter and put it back onto the carrier to send it down. Now, if you think about that, that's like having a transmitter between you and me. I pick up my little radio, I press the transmit button, my voice gets sent by radio across to your receiver, your receiver then takes the voice off the received signal and puts it onto a speaker. Now take what I've just taken off your speaker and move it across to another transmitter and transmit it down. You've now got a spacecraft. Because what I've done is I've said, right, I transmit it to you. You now take it off, turn it into the voice, move it across to another transmitter and transmit it somewhere else. There's your spacecraft, your bit. So it's the technology here. I mean, Telstar is so far ahead of anything we've ever dreamt of before as an experiment it's brilliant it's doing so many things at once it's a receiver it's a receiver which takes it down to a television picture it takes that television picture and it hands it over to a modulator which turns around and puts it on the traveling wave tube to send it out on a different frequency to all over the earth on 72 aerials because it's spinning round I mean, when you start to look at something like this, you start to realise just how incredible this whole thing was and how many brains it had to put together to get this to actually work. Um, we take it all for granted. We turn round, we turn on our television and we, we, we have our satellite dish on my motorhome, for example. I got a satellite dish which finds the satellite I wanted to find out of the 42 that are on that swing that I can see. It locks onto it, it brings down the signal, it decodes it, it puts it on my television at the press of a button. Go all the way back to the likes of Telstar and you are at the very start of how on earth do we find this little tiny ball racing round the earth, appearing every two hours and 40 minutes, lasting in our view for about 35, 40 minutes, disappearing again and we're going to have to find it next time it comes round. You are at a situation here where we knew so little. The brains behind this were incredible. You could turn around and you had literally to say, where is it going to appear next time? The maths involved in that. Today, that maths is all done on a little tiny processor chip sitting in my antenna dish on the roof of my mobile home. There were guys with slide rules sitting there working this out every time this spacecraft where's it going to go oh it's in this orbit it's moved half a degree i need to work out when it gets right around the other side of the earth where is it going to appear in my azimuth and elevation where am i going to point this ruddy great big dish at goonilly to find this thing next time around and it worked they did it time after time after time and each time they did it, they got a bit cleverer at it. They realized a bit more. But this is the first time. This is experimentation like you wouldn't believe. 
Was it incredible? Yes. Did it make people wonder at what's going on? Absolutely. It was the start of everything we have today, and we take it for granted. It's it's sad. People turn around and say, Oh, I've got Sky Television. Oh, I've got 150 channels. Well, my satellite dish that I've got on the top of my motorhome can receive 44 different spacecraft and 6,500 different television channels if I want to. Go all the way back to 1962. One television channel. Noisy, grey, not the best lock. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, we we don't realise. We don't, and it's sad that we don't teach enough about it because it was amazing steps forward to everything we take for granted. Absolutely. It's been brilliant listening to you, giving us a little um, peek into uh, the history of spacecraft and how they all work. Thanks very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Love the music, but of course... The conversation that actually I, I want to say this, and I've, I've said it many times before, and I want to say it again. You are an awesome interviewer, Captain Nick, because <laughs> you know how to ask the right questions and then move out of the way. And and this guy, wow, it was just like he was reading a transcript, but he wasn't. It was all everything from the top of his head. That was the most incredible I, part to me because that's uh, that's some very technical stuff and i know that's what he knows and does and did but wow yeah. that's still difficult to yeah he's quite a few years older than me uh so you know he's got a few years under his belt but he he has it all right there in the front of his mind and once you get him on the subject which subject he absolutely loves uh you know there's no stopping him so i had to do very little <laughs> Jeff, I just had to move him on a little bit uh, at times because we could have made that several hours. But uh, right, I, right. he's so passionate about it, and uh, he's got he's got it all in his head. And he was right at the forefront of uh, modern uh, satellite uh, communications, uh, and uh, he he. You know, he's forgotten more than most people will ever know. And he's quite right. We take it all for granted, uh, but it is still a miracle when we can point something on the side of our house uh, up into the air and pick up a signal, a tiny, tiny signal from one of the myriad of spacecraft that are out there. And how the hell they managed to stop them all from bashing into each other, I just do not know. It's... It's all incredible. Very, very interesting. I, I loved chatting to Matt. Uh, for 25 years, he's been uh, teaching me, and I still uh, I'm flummoxed every time we get into a conversation. <laughs> Great really, stuff. Anyway. It really is amazing. And I think the most important uh, image in that whole entire presentation, uh, Liz, would you please put yep. the... Uh, the one that I'm sure that you know, I think, is the most important uh, image of all of them. Um, yes, I do. Okay, she's uh, here. We go. Look at that. Oh, that very modern RV. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's what you're waiting on, right? It's going to exactly. be exactly. That's what that. mine's going to look like with that big, huge <laughs> dish on. And he's going to drive it immediately to the desert. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. a very undisturbed life. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And you're going to yeah. have this many uh, TVs. Thank on you very it. much. Uh, 
Mid that's the inside, right there. For yeah. Uh, yeah, producing that's the inside, that. Yeah. <laughs> it's his bedroom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be all your so TV does screens. This, maybe I missed it, but d- does he actually live in this motorhome? Uh, no, he had. He does have a motorhome, and he's currently he's, he's selling his house here in the UK uh-huh. to move out to uh, back to Ireland, uh, where he grew up. Um, and in the meantime, he's living in a motorhome. That that's just a mid-journey <laughs> representation oh, of one. That's not a real one. <laughs> I, was no, like, I was looking at the chassis. By AI. I love that chassis there with the wheels in the middle, too. I'm thinking, wow, it must be a very heavy dish that's on top or something. Needs extra support. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. No, I, I chucked that in there for a bit of fun. Really. Okay. But uh, uh, Matt has had a, a number of motorhomes. And uh, as you can imagine, with someone with his uh, electronic skills and expertise, he immediately delves into them and modifies the devil out of them. So... Uh, yeah, he, they, he has a very capable satellite tracking system on it. <laughs> wow. Very good. Well, thank you for that uh, great interview with uh, Matt. And uh, yeah, it would be great to hear from him again sometime in the future. Well, he, he's disappearing out of uh, out of the area, so it'll be harder. But uh, well, you have to travel to. to uh, Unfortunately, we have these things yeah. called satellites and like yeah, I know, technology I know, that we could, you know. Northern Ireland is not them. far away, so I should be able to get to see him. There you go. Thanks, Nick. Have a good Excellent. night. Yeah, Nick. Yeah, um, I'm going to head off. If that's okay, Jeff. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for hanging in there for so long. I know it's getting late there. No so. problem. All right. Yep, Our yep. best uh, I'll to, wish uh, you best for the rest of the show and thanks. see you next week. Night. Our best Have to you and Jilly and the dog. All the best. Bye. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye then. Uh, let's go to uh, four. What do you think, Steph? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, this is feedback from Basim. Basim? Yes, I think he came and Nick talked to him. He did some flight training in the UK, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they don't hear what you're saying, Liz. Um, yeah, he did, uh, uh, Nick met up with him, Captain Nick, um, and he was doing some flight training um, in the UK, I believe. I right? believe so. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, he's one of our APG community members for uh, quite a while now. And uh, he says this to us. Uh, APG episode 583 discussed the final report on the Daalo, is that the way you say that? Uh, D-A-A-L-L-O Airlines flight 159A3. Here, let me see. Um, I I think, yes, I got it right. Um, A321 accident in Somalia. It reminded me of a similar incident that took place back in 2000 in my home country, Jordan, also involving an A320 operated by Royal Jordanian in a failed hijack attempt. The perpetrator detonated a hand grenade, uh, pre-9-11 airport security, huh? as he was shot by the air, mar- air marshals on board. And then he gives us some links uh, with more information. And he said, there are some details not mentioned that are of interest to me as an AvGeek pilot. The crew managed to land the aircraft not only with a loss of cabin pressure and a sizable hole in the fuselage, but also the aircraft entered into emergency electrical configuration, and that's in quotes, um, resulting in limited avionics and with one of the hydraulic systems operable. They managed to land the aircraft and safely evacuate the passengers without any further injuries except for those 
originally injured by the detonation of the uh, grenade. Um, so he, uh, as I said, uh, sent us. Yes, ma'am. No, I just you know it's uh, it's interesting these different uh, incident scenarios worldwide. Never even heard of this one. So yeah, this happened yeah some some 2000. time ago. Yeah, there are a lot of things that happened. And I'm thinking, well, pre nine eleven, I think that we yeah. just really didn't talk about, hear about, and I think there's probably a lot of reasons for it. One, it just wasn't on. I'm not paying um, attention. Yeah, yeah right. it wasn't on in the interest in society quite as much, perhaps. I mean, big things for sure, but things that are, you know, not that this was small by any means, but, um, you know, regional. No major. Uh, well, you know, aside from the initial injuries from the the grenade that was uh, detonated and the. Uh, perpetrator being shot by the air marshals everyone else was fine on the aircraft it landed safely despite all the other things going on so um but also i think just you know um pre-9-11 you know just wasn't uh something that would have captured media attention quite as much right and i don't know why we didn't cover it on our show oh wait no, oh, in 2000? Yeah, we didn't We didn't start the show until 2009. You go back and cover all those now, Jeff? Yeah, I can't do that. Yeah, we're going to have to have you go back. Go back. And... Yeah, you, you, you can never go back. You know, you just yeah, got to keep on moving again. forward. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you Thanks, think it's worth awesome. reading any of these articles? We'll just put them in the uh, show notes. I think in the show notes, I think it's And uh, people can uh, read up about them. But, yeah, thank you for bringing it to our attention, uh, Bazin. All right, uh, let's continue on with this next one uh, from Rob, and uh, New Zealand. He uh, in New Zealand, and he says something about cheeky Canadians. Hello, APG team, still loving the show from even further down under in New Zealand. Just thought this article might be newsworthy, and uh, it's from TravelWeekly.com.au, and he says the they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Thanks again for a great show. Uh, so the uh, title of the article is Air New Zealand Takes Swipe at Air Canada After It Reveals, quote, Unique All-Black Aircraft. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> here's a comparison of a couple of different um, airline liveries that are uh, almost all black. Air New Zealand has called out uh, North American airline Air Canada after it revealed one of its new aircraft. Air Canada post posted an image of its new jets that's j-e-t-z because we're talking about canada and uh, and new zealand oh thank you yes um an aircraft uh, so jets an aircraft on twitter an aircraft that is painted entirely black and that's actually a pretty cool look uh, introducing a new look for our air canada jets aircraft that charter sports teams musicians and more that charter sports team okay that's interesting um, a twist on our mainline livery select jets aircraft will have an all-black livery making them instantly recognizable and feature a modernized upgraded cabin uh, air new zealand responded to the tweet within hours quote we may have blacked out uh, get it blacked out for a sec <laughs> but this is looking oddly familiar and then they of course they included a picture of the Air New Zealand, New Zealand mostly black livery. All black, yeah. The Kiwi airline is known rugby. for having numerous all black aircraft. Oh, all black because of their rugby team. Rugby right? team, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not the only time. Uh, this is not the first time Air New Zealand has used uh, X, formerly Twitter. <laughs> How long do we have to say that? Uh, to point out familiar marketing moves by other airlines. 
Last year, it tweeted at Emirates about its use of a goose in a series of television and digital commercials. Uh, so is that Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y? Yeah, Jerry. Jerry, Gerald. you goose. You got the wrong airline, it tweeted. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks, right. Rob. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Rob, for sending that in. And uh, glad to know that we have some uh, community members uh, down there still in New Zealand. Uh, oh, Larry, Larry, Larry Gregory, the uh, the geezer, he said, the geezer strikes again. He uh, sends us a picture, and uh, it says uh, there's a piece of paper uh, with some printing on it uh, that is taped to the inside of the uh, captain's side cockpit window, the one that you would see as you're boarding an aircraft uh, from the jetway. It says, uh, please do not tap on the glass. It scares the pilots. See flight attendant for pilot feeding, pilots feeding hours. Um, <laughs> I'm going to steal that and put it in my aircraft. They need to put an apostrophe in there, though. I'm a little upset about that. Pilots, yeah. yeah. Um, I was just going to say, please do not tap the pilot. Scares them. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. On their shoulder. Anyway, that's so that's very cute. Thanks, Thank Larry. you, Larry Geezer, for that. Um, and uh, talking about things that could possibly be corrected a little bit, uh, this is uh, again from uh, Sam. And uh, is Sam with us in the uh, nope. live audience today? No, I don't see him. Uh, Sam Dawson. Um, he said, I found this book about the attack on Pearl Harbor while looking for my next read. Not to be nitpicky with the cover art, but the Germans didn't start fielding the Fockwerken, um, I guess, is how you, uh, Fockwerk. How would you say that in German? I have no idea. Fockwolf? Uh, okay. 190 until August of, or I thought it was a mess, wasn't it a Messerschmitt? Yeah, I don't know my German airplanes. Uh, anyway, the FW-190 until August of 1941. So it's doubtful they used it on their attack on Pearl Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember the Germans no. um, being involved in being involved for them to fly. in Pearl Harbor. That's weird. Um, uh. My college professor, uh, Dr. John Bluto Blutarski, would have been very disappointed at this lack of accuracy. World War II was Dr. Blutarski's specialty. As always, keep the sunny side up. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting interesting cover art there. <laughs> I guess it's a, a fictional you know, uh, work? Maybe. I, I don't know. It doesn't... I don't think it's intended to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I don't is, think it was intentionally yeah. fictional, but now it is. So. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, continuing on with uh, APG this. APG After Dark. Oh, APG After Dark. All right. Is it late enough, Liz, for us to discuss this one? I think so. It definitely is in Europe. I think okay. so. Okay. Um, I believe it was alluded to, this is from Robert, uh, adults only section uh, in APG 584. Yes, we were talking about uh, the airline that was introducing a uh, an adults only Section or what was the name of the Seating airline again? Area, yeah. Um, oh yeah, it was a, it was the um, with a C. Which airline was it? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, but an old. Yeah. So basically, no children allowed in that section, so that you could have 
you know, time to work or sleep mm -hmm. or not be perturbed by crying babies. Right. Well, right. he said, uh, I believe it was alluded to uh, a little different kind of adults only section in this episode. But regardless, it's usually a good idea to uh, not embarrass your mom or mum in this case on international news. And this is from the dailymail.co.uk. Um, again, this is from Robert in Tucker, Georgia. Uh, and then the, uh, the headline is uh, from, yeah, as I said, Daily Mail. Corindon, Corindon, Corindon. Airline. Yeah, there we, there we go. Corindon Airlines was the uh, airline that uh, uh, was introducing the new adult-only section. But not adult-only in this kind of respect. Uh, mother's horror as her son goes viral for having sex in an easy jet plane toilet with a woman he'd only just met at the airport before emerging to applause from other passengers. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So Pierce uh, Sawyer, uh, I think he's 20. Oh, yeah. He was celebrating. Oh, boy, was he. His 23rd birthday. Uh, and um, let's see. He, uh, when he joined the Mile High Club uh, and his mother says the embarrassing video is not something a mom wants to see. Uh, she says she was left horrified after her son went viral for having sex in a plane toilet with a I woman he just one of the flight met. attendants opened the door um, during the yeah so the um while he was celebrating in the uh, aft lavatory uh one of the flight attendants uh opened the door and uh yeah that was kind of a, a shock i'm sure poor mom and uh yeah what else to say about this that's, that that's uh, apparently it. i don't know this this article is another one that repeats the exact same thing about 100 what? times what? So no to see if there was way. any additional additional information uh, about this um no but apparently they weren't shy about it or they weren't blushing about it no, no they're blushing as they walked back no, down were... the aisle to their seats yeah they were very and, happy about i mean it. the passengers i mean everyone's going to ibiza on uh, easyjet there you go. so they were they were all London Luton to, uh, to Ibiza. The, uh -huh. well, that girl was certainly easy jet. Uh, oh, <laughs> it gives, <laughs> it gives uh, easy jet a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Uh, let's see, Bedfordshire uh, Police, uh, which is responsible for policing at Luton Airport, confirming to Mail Online that it was not involved in the response. Wait a minute, why, why did I read that? Um, Section seventy one of the Sexual Offenses Act 2004 states that it is illegal to have sex in a lavatory to which the public has access. And I guess that applies to uh, lavatories uh, in airplanes as well. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, well, it wasn't a great idea on their part. No. Memorable birthday, that's for it sure. It was memorable for sure. And I'm not really sure exactly. Apparently, what I'm getting from this is the mother wasn't horrified about what her son did she was horrified no. that it was in a video that went viral right <laughs> so. you didn't want to go public it's really the public shaming that's the, the uh, horrifying i see part of it okay a mom doesn't want to see that oh well uh thanks robert Moving i on. think for that um and uh let's see i gotta get ready for this one uh brian uh the subject line of his email to us is a couple of questions on a recent flight, I had a couple of questions come up. The first one may be for one of the flight attendant community members. Okay, for those of you listening, uh, if you're a flight attendant, uh, listen up. 
You may need to send us some feedback. An elderly couple were boarding with bags and were sitting in the exit row. They had to ask a flight attendant for help putting their bags in the overhead bins because they couldn't lift them that high. How heavy are the exit doors? And do flight attendants have the ability to judge when someone is not able to serve on the exit row? Um, I can, I'm not a flight attendant, but I can tell you, number one, yes, they are supposed to have the physical strength to uh, take that exit door off. And they're, they're 40, 35, 45 pounds, depending on the uh, airplane and the exit door. Uh, that they have to either open up and then place on the seats inside the aircraft or throw out the hole created by the uh, exit door removal and out onto the wing. And uh, and I know there are some airplanes out there that have hinged exit, overwing exit doors. I think the 737 is one of them. Um, but still, yeah, uh, that should be a red flag. And yes, the flight attendants do know. They, you know, you don't realize it, but the flight attendants, when you're boarding an airplane, they are taking stock in checking you out. what you uh, you know what you look like, how you're acting, your phys- you know the the possible physical attributes that you have that might be helpful in a, in any of a number of situations, including emergency evacuations, but also situations where you know they may have some unruly passengers. They they're taking an inventory on. Uh, the people that are going to be helpful to them, or perhaps the people that might be uh, problems. And uh, this is one that I think, Brian, they should have said, wait a minute, <laughs> you need help <laughs> putting your bag in the yeah, overhead bin? you shouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, not not yeah. Uh, appropriate. And then... Uh, yeah, it's the whole willing and able. You have to be and physically able. able. Yeah, they may have been willing. Willing is one thing, and it's not, you know, it's not a discrimination thing, but you physically have to be able to perform that job duty if called upon. Exactly. And then, uh, oh, wait. And then during our descent into Houston, the captain came on the intercom and made an announcement that they were performing a go-around and then announced that there was something happening with the flaps. <laughs> And they needed to check it out. <laughs> Something happening with the flaps. Uh, while I didn't have a problem, looking around the plane, it was obvious. Many people became nervous. So while I appreciated the communication, how do you balance communication to give information without causing concerns? We were still high enough that the majority of the plane wouldn't have, been, uh, wouldn't have noticed that we did do a go-around. Well... Yeah, I mean, I, I I usually, if we have to, it, it depends on the situation, Brian, for me. I mean, if we're like, if you're looking out the window and you can clearly see the ground and you can point, you know, pick out cars and, and uh, you know, you can tell you're getting closer and closer to the point where you're going to touch down on the runway uh, and then you end up going around, um, that's when I'll make a PA and say, hey, you know, the, uh, we apologize, but we're going to have to take another trip around the pattern because there was you know, some issue with another, and I had to, you have to be very careful of the way you say this too. There was another aircraft still using the runway at the time. And, and what people don't realize these things are, these runways are like a couple of miles long. So it wasn't like we were about to hit another airplane. So I try to make it, I try to say it so that they don't feel like they were in a near midair collision or something. It was a horror um, so yeah, you, it's, it, this is tough. It really is because you want to say what is actually happening, something happening with the flaps. Yeah, you have to, if you're going to say something like that, you're going to say, it's, 
if you do say something, you probably shouldn't have said that part of it. You may Maybe, say, do we need to... I, I don't know, it would be, and I'm just thinking, an indication, um, well, I don't know. There, no, it doesn't indication. matter how you say it, really. Yeah. Uh, an indicator light that we need to, an indicator here in the cockpit that we need to resolve and expect to, but just mm-hmm. going to take an extra moment here of flying time. So we're going right. to be a few minutes before we're on the ground. Exactly. So. Uh, but there's a way to but, say it. But to if be you're going to say it, reassuring and calming. But you might want to yeah. say like, "Oh, don't worry. This it's not a it's not a big deal. It's just something that we re- yeah. are required to check out before we we're still going to be able to land. Ex- we're just required to, you know, take another shot at it. Take another look at this before we do. Or yes. Something. I hope boxes has a comment on the. Um, well, enable. that was the previous. Um, well, no, willing and able, willing and able. Oh, I see. Oh no, this does tie in. Thank you, Liz. Uh, I haul boxes in our wonderful live audience. Our chat room um, sa- tells us that the two at EasyJet seemed willing and able. Yes, they, those were, they were two willing, physically strong enough, and to able passengers uh, to do whatever they were I- engaged in. Uh, <laughs> and they probably would have had not no problem at all if they were sitting in the exit row um, mm-hmm. handling. Uh, their luggage and the overhead bins. Uh, they they seem to be a little bit more physically fit, apparently. Um, the communication stuff. Uh, you know, I think it is hard to, and, and this is something I do in my day job, nothing to do with aviation, trying to take a lot of technical jargon and distill it into things that are understandable and explainable. And it's easy to do when you're sitting, you know, one-on-one with a person you have access to, um, models that you can show and demonstrate in 3D structures, um, then really take time to answer questions. It's a little different when you're in the middle of, you know, doing your job and everyone's behind a closed door behind you and you need to say something and, you know, continue doing what you're doing. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where you probably don't have to say anything until you're ready to say something. You know, there's very few things where you need to just blurt something out right away. Um, I've been, um, passenger on flights where I feel like that's happened a couple times. There was a flight not too long ago, didn't talk about it. It was a flight that ended up getting canceled because there were a variety of things wrong with the aircraft. One of which was, the the initial thing was the APU was in-op and um, there was something else tied to it too going on. I don't remember all the details, but um, (laughs) uh, when it became clear, there were more more issues than just the auxiliary power unit not functioning on that aircraft. Um, the captain's PA went something like, well, our auxiliary power unit, you know, that was okay. But then uh, she went on to say something like, um, but it's okay. We can, we, it, we don't need it for this flight. Uh, we MELed it. And I'm like, don't <laughs> Yeah, I know what that <laughs> means. say that. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how it went. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's Go going ahead. good up until that they point. But I get it. You know, it? when you're, when you're used to using like yeah. technical jargon or things that everyone else around you understands, you forget what other people aren't familiar with. Good so. point. Yeah. You have to do a lot of self-assessment and okay, is what I'm saying going to be understandable or not take, not be taken the wrong way. And, you know, you don't always hit the mark on that. You know, I, even if you've been doing it a very long time, like I have, sometimes you'll say something and go, yeah, I probably could have said that a little bit better. It's better to say something though, in most cases, even if it, it, you know, you have to come back and maybe explain a little bit more later or it doesn't 
go so exactly true. the way you meant it to. People want to know that you're, you know, they're not just being left in the dark that, yep. hey, we think something's going on, but we have no idea what it is. Better to have a little bit of information. Better if you can take a moment, figure yep. out what it is that needs to be said in a way that's going to be understandable to most people. Because they're going to make up something. If you don't give them something, an explanation for what's happening, they'll make something up. And trust me. Oh, yeah. It won't be as good as what you are really experienced. It'll be horribly worse. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, good, good uh, point, Steph. Uh, so, Steph, thank you, you might Brian want to and take Katie. The lead Texas. on the next one, uh, Steph. Um, this is kind of um, was. Uh, I'm going to let you read the you. first line there. <clears throat> okay, and then I'll take over. Um, this, this hi, Captain funny. Jeff. Hi, everyone from the RPG team. That's a RPG right there, a rocket-propelled rocket grenade. grenade. I think. Oh, you know what? I think Stefan uh, meant to send this to a different podcast. No. <laughs> we'll forward it on. I no. think. No, I, I think honest, there. I think there were some autocorrect uh, I, things I, happening here. I, I think that, and maybe I was even thinking maybe this was a text to a speech to text. I think so. Actually, I think so because there's a couple other things in here that I'm going to read through what I think is correct, and you can correct me if I'm incorrectly correcting. (laughs) What? What? Whoa! (laughs) What did you just say? I don't understand. Yeah, I get. I understand what you're trying to say. You understand what I mean? Yes, uh, I understand what you mean. Um, Okay, yeah. So uh, I am so happy to uh, uh, hand you the controls for this one. All right. Says this is Stefan from uh, Hamburg, Germany speaking. I do have a question for Dr. Steph and also a small feedback regarding APG episode 579. And my question I do have is especially for Dr. Steph because I just recently got my caravan rating. Oh, and I'm also now. No, how no, do no, you it says it's carbon rating. It says carbon rating. <laughs> it definitely, he meant caravan rating. And yeah. I will tell you why I know that for sure okay. here in a moment. Okay. Um, I follow Stefan on Twitter. Yeah. X, whatever. Uh-huh. And um, I actually have a question for him about the propeller on his particular caravan because I've not seen that one before and I'm not mm. familiar with it. it looks awesome. Um, it's got five blades on it, I think. Anyway. Uh, the whole box comment, Jeff. RV, RV pilot guy. Yeah. That's what RPG actually is. That's what oh, it's going to yeah. become here after retirement. It'll That's, be well, the I'm RPG gonna, show. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to change it to R, the RPG. The RV pilot guy. <laughs> I love it. So back to Stefan. Yeah. I just recently got my caravan rating and I'm also now, how do you say that? A jumper dumper. (laughs) How do we call that in Germany? He doesn't say. And I do have a question regarding the rules I have heard in the States or maybe also in other parts of the world that the pilot is responsible uh, for, uh, let's see. Okay. Hold on. There's a little bit of voice to text here to make sure I get correct. Um, That is it the pilot who is responsible or it is the person flying the jumper aircraft who is also responsible for the weather minima at the jump site so that the jumpers will have VFR conditions when they are jumping out. So basically, who's responsible for making sure that weather minimums are met for skydiving operations? Well, in Germany, the jumpers are solely responsible for the, well, sticking to the VFR weather minima. So actually, my job is to bring them over the jump site to the exact jump spot and the jumpers look out the open door, and then they have to decide if it's VFR or not. And so, uh, and so far, I have not experienced anyone that said, oh, there's a cloud below, so I won't jump. And apparently that's, in most cases, if the door is open and if I switch on the green light, they jump out. That's the question. How is that handled in the States? 
I won't comment whether it's safe or not safe or whatever, just asking about the rules. Um, and then I have a story to tell. There, uh, okay, we're going to hold off on that story for just a moment. We're going to go, we're going to address these one at a time because there's quite a bit in here. So yes, Stefan, you are, um, your, your question is a good one. And we, for the states, we have to go to our um, federal aviation regulations because they guide everything that we do. And if you go to FAR 105, um, there's a section about flight visibility and clearance from cloud requirements. And the way it's written, it says, no person may conduct a parachute operation and, and, not or, and no pilot in command of an aircraft may allow a parachute operation to be conducted from that aircraft, A, into or through a cloud, B, when the flight visibility um, or the distance from any cloud is less than that prescribed in the following table, and it's basically um, a general VFR minimum there. So, um, but yeah, it does say that it's the person conducting the parachute operation, but also the pilot in command of the aircraft. So, um, you, you'll know this now, having flown the caravan for a while. Um, how do we handle that? So, obviously, we're not only flying skydivers on day or conducting jump operations on days when there's zero clouds in the sky. That would not be realistic. The drop zone would never make any money doing that. Um, you'd probably sit on the ground all day hoping that one little puff of cloud in the sky would just go away so you could not potentially conflict with it or interfere with it in any way. Um, but on a, on a nice VFR day, typically the cloud clearance is such that you're going to have plenty of space for the jumpers to be able to conduct safe operations and not have to fall through clouds or violate this, um, this regulation. So our job is to make sure that we're not taking off on days when that wouldn't be the case. So if even if there's weather coming in and it's you know clear right above the drop zone at the moment, but we know that 20 minutes from now, that's not going to be the case, we'll typically hold that flight. Um, that always gets a lot of um, negative reaction from jumpers and especially from those who are there to do, um, tandem skydives, because again, it's like, you know, taking your passengers on, a uh, a scheduled airline flight, you know, the weather at your destination, where you are is great. The destination is great. The weather in between is the problem, but they don't realize that. Right. No. So you have to do what's safe for the operation. Um, and we have to deal with that a lot as well. And we, we pay a lot of attention to it because we, you know, and we sit, the way we describe this to the jumpers is that we'll fly a lot longer than we'll stay in the air a lot longer than they want to under canopy for sure in in adverse conditions. So we don't want to put them in that spot. We don't want to make it unsafe for them. We don't want them to be in any place where they're, you know, violating the regulations or that we are. So um, we take that very seriously. Um, but you know, it does happen where we will be up at jump altitude over the spot. Um, for those who don't know, we typically have a system of two lights. So red light is where they can open the door and look out of the door and get ready to jump. And whoever is in the door closest to it depends on the size of the aircraft. Sometimes that's a couple people can see. Sometimes it's only a couple people um, relative to the number of jumpers in the group. Um, but that person's job is to open the door and stick their head out the door and look straight down. And the reason they're supposed to do that is so that they can look for any obstacles. So is there another airplane in the way that's circling that for some reason we don't know about? Um, and then mostly look at the clouds. You know, is it going to be safe to jump in that moment? So um, what they can see is often very different than what I can see. Um, you know, in the caravan, we have great forward visibility, 
don't have great vis visibility straight down or below me. So it's possible that I've flown over kind of a thick layer of cloud and didn't really know it. Um, and if that's the case, they're not supposed to jump. So it's kind of a shared, uh, shared decision-making process at that point. Um, but it's also very much my job to make sure that I'm not putting them in that decision-making process. So hopefully that answers that question a bit. Um, and it's not uncommon that the jumpers will ask for us to do a go-around. So we will do a go-around at altitude and basically just do an orbit or a 360 and come back and try it again because guess what? Clouds move, they build, they dissipate, they do different things. Even a couple minutes difference in time can give you a completely different sight picture. So, I, I, you know, I had no idea that, that there was that dual responsibility oh, yeah. kind of thing. Uh, I, we're you know, responsible I, for... I, I see the like the the videos of people like you know at the at the door and looking down and around and all that kind of stuff and I I didn't realize that they were making an assessment of the if the jump was safe to do or not, um, but uh, that that's some interesting stuff. Um, looks like we have to pause for just a moment while um, uh, Steph takes another call, which is an important call, I'm sure. It was. I'm sorry. I was trying to just sneak that in there while you were talking. Oh yeah, still. very good. So, yeah, okay. I, I just happened yeah. to look up and go, "Oh, she's she's talking to somebody on her phone." <laughs> I I uh, I've been multitasking. I ordered um, food because I've been out of the country and I have no food, and it's oh. apparently at my door. But I didn't oh, go want, get it. I've, it. It's okay. No, as long as it's there, um, I should actually okay. make sure it's here because I wanted to answer it because my house is um, not easy to find. Yeah, um, and it's once you make, once you make sure. So I want to make sure it wasn't uh, lost. Well, so I make sure? Okay. I'll yeah. make sure and then I'll come back and then I'll yeah. I've got one more thing to oh, let me add on to that real quick so I don't lose my train of thought and then I'll yeah. go get it before I move on to the um so um the way the FARs are written, um the PIC for parachute operations is uh responsible for a lot of things. We're not allowed to let people make uh do uh make skydives at night. So between sunset and sunrise, unless you meet a lot of criteria, we certainly do that, but there's all kinds of lighting that has to be um, accounted for so that jumpers are able to be seen. Um, we are not allowed. What are some of the other interesting ones? I'm just trying to think of off the top of my, some of them are kind of like, well, that makes sense. Um, but this one is always interesting to me. So it says, no person may conduct a parachute operation using a single harness dual parachute system, and no pilot in command of an aircraft may allow a person to conduct a parachute operation from an aircraft using that same system, unless that system meets all of these uh, qualifications. So has one main parachute, a reserve parachute, and that you know that it's the reserve has been packed within, or the main has been packed within 180 days, and the reserve has been repacked within 180 days. Um, so that's a lot of responsibility how, on how the PIC you know to that? know that. So our drop zone, um, I mean, it's all regulated. We, When jumpers show up to jump for the first time, if they're jumping their own gear, they have to check in. They have to prove that they have these things. You know, we, we obviously aren't. Um, the pilot isn't checking it before they get on the airplane every single time, but we keep track of all of that for all of our jumpers to make sure that those regulations are being satisfied. Yeah. And is it yeah. obvious when but it's yeah, that a comes single back, harness that comes back to and me. dual parachute system? Is it pretty, pretty I mean, obvious? It's just the way it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's the standard Okay. Um, skydiving rig, but oh, I thought um, oh, I, I when you said that I thought you meant like not including the reserve, like two parachutes. Oh no, no, no! no. They're just saying you the the pilot in command is also responsible if someone okay. jumps okay. without uh, in date gear, basically. Okay. So if your gear is out of date or not assembled properly, you know, there's all kinds of things that could come back to the pilot in command. So, um, but yeah, we have a lot of folks that are checking on all of that when you get there to jump 
for the first time at a new place. So, um, go get your food. What go else get your food. Should I get my food yeah. real quick? Go yeah, food. get your food just to make sure it's there. Yeah, and then we can okay, hold on. hit the Here's rest that. of this. Okay. And then uh, just for everybody here uh, on the video, when Steph gets back, we'll cover the rest of this. And then we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. Unfortunately, uh, I, I'm sorry, Grinner. Uh, Grinner is leaving us in the chat room. He's probably already gone. Um, that was about three minutes ago. So, Grinner, sorry. We... Uh, um, had I realized that it was going to be, um, uh, this late for you, I would have tried to do this earlier in our, uh, feedback lineup. Rush it too, though. Yeah, but we don't want, yeah, we certainly don't want to rush it. So, uh, so it's a, it's really good, uh, audio feedback from Grinner. And so we're going to uh, feature that in our next episode. <sighs> so, um, <sighs> looks like it was a success, uh, with the yes, food. Food is here. I, uh, I I just didn't want it to show up too late, but I thought it was actually not going to show up until we were finished. So apologies. Um, no I'm problem. glad that it's here sooner, though, because then I won't have to wait on it. Excellent. <sighs> All right. Yeah. Just ran some stairs there. Got a little cardio in. Uh-huh. So let's see here. Let's well, go back so to his. I know, right? Um, All right. So we're going to go back to Stefan's um, feedback here. He says he has a story to tell. Um. This is about some exercise uh, where the there were three jumpers who were in the process to get their license, and they had a task um, to do. So he was flying along a fixed point along next to the airport along a road, and Stefan was told, and everyone was briefed about it, um, except for apparently these jumpers who weren't licensed yet. I'm not sure. Um that he was to turn on the green light so that they were ready to jump out near the first road. But then they wanted him to continue flying to another point, which was a second road farther away from there. Um, And they were supposed, the jumpers were supposed to wait until that point, apparently. I'm not sure exactly what was going on here. Um, He says, at this point, you will have the chance to make it back to the airport and all the old jumper teachers, everybody knows it will go wrong. And it, (laughs) <laughs> to go on. I was flying across the path. I switched on the green light. The door was open. And as soon as the green light went on, the first one went out and all the other ones were boop, 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 uh, jumping out as well. Like, <laughs> what? What do you call that? Lemmings? <laughs> we have the stories about the little animals jumping off the cliff. Uh, and they were not looking if they would make it or not. So all the older wise guys said, well, that's typical for the first time. <laughs> so that's a little story I have to tell. Maybe you have a different story, different same story to tell as well. Uh, we'll pause there because he's got another small part here. But um, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, there's a lot of things going on for especially newer jumpers in their head. We talk about this a lot with with flying and flight training and things. And even just when there's task saturation and stuff happening in much more professional environments where things are missed or things get rushed, um, it there's a lot going on in a newer jumper's head about what they're supposed to be doing on that skydive, um, even if they've been briefed on things. Um, kind of the classic example is he might be talking about a, um, I think what Stephens might be talking about is a canopy course. So especially for newer jumpers, but it, oftentimes for more experienced jumpers as well, they'll attend a, an instructional day where they get uh, additional instruction about how to fly their parachutes better, how to fly their canopy better. Um, so typically you'll take these jumpers up to a lower altitude and then they're just going to exit the airplane and immediately deploy their parachutes. They can do different drills and work on different types of turns and, and harness input. Um, 
and and flight patterns and things like that. So, <laughs> you know, typically we want to put enough spacing in between these jumpers for a couple of reasons. One is so that they have plenty of clear airspace around them to do their their drills and their canopy work. The other is so that they're not all coming in on top of each other, so that whoever is running the canopy course will typically be videoing their landings and other things so they can debrief it afterwards. Um, so it's, you know, we'll tell them what the ground speed is, your exit or, or your exit separation and delay is based on how fast the airplane is moving. The faster the airplane's moving, the quicker you need to get out because you're covering more uh, more ground more quickly. But if the airplane's moving pretty slowly ground speed wise, you actually will exit the aircraft. You'll, you'll put a lot more time in between jumpers. And on days like that, when we're running these canopy courses where we tell jumpers you need eight seconds or more between jumpers, I don't think they ever give it more than five seconds. It's very rare. It's like, boom, boom, boom. And they just, everyone gets out. You go, and that's not at all what we tell, but they're, they're so caught up in thinking about what yeah. they're going to do for these canopy drills and everything else. They forget all about the timing that they were supposed to, and the spacing they were supposed to have. So yeah, that, that happens. I see it all the time. <laughs> um, all right. So he's got a final part. Um, also for, it's for Dr. Steve. So I might have to. Oh, wait, 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 where's Dr. Steve? On. Dr. Steve Horn. <laughs> oh, Steve Horn. No, it, this is definitely a voice text. I, I knew what you meant, Stefan. Dr. Steph. He said, you were talking about, this is actually, this is a good question. He says, you were talking about some medical aid doctor might have or is a little bit resistant to perform medical assistance to some passengers in flight. I know that my airline and most probably other airlines as well, they do have a well-equipped doctor's kit on board. And in the doctor's kit, there's also a written statement from the company that if there's any liability issues regarding the treatment of passengers, the company or the airline will pay it. So the doctor on board is insured. At least that's what I was told. And that's because, and that's, uh, he says, especially in America, everybody knows that the amount of liability is ridiculous, ridiculously high. And, uh, oh, just that's his feedback. So I was just going to add on to that real quick because, um, at least here in the U S there's the aviation medical assistance act of 1998. Look that up. Um, but basically if you're flying on a, if you're flying within the United States, even if the airline is not owned by a U.S. company, you have good, what's called Good Samaritan protection. Um, and basically that gives you protection from lawsuits alleging negligence unless as an individual while rendering assistance, you are found to be guilty of gross negligence or willful misconduct. So you really would have to be acting outside of any training that you might have or doing it with some sort of malicious intent, which, you know, that's very unlikely to happen. So the, um, the act also protects the airline from liability. So if the carrier believe, or if the carrier in good faith believes that the passenger is medically qualified, um, then they won't be liable for anything either. And they can just meet that requirement simply by asking the person who volunteers if they're a healthcare provider. So it's, it's basically good faith understanding that everyone is there to provide assistance to help in an emergency situation and that the assistance that they're offering is going to be within their um, training or background. Not something yep. that they're experimenting with the, on the, the the first time. Correct. Oh, that'd be Correct. fun. They're not going to be performing, you know, experimental surgery <laughs> on someone on an airplane. It's 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 for people yeah. who are going to show up to respond to you know a cardiac arrest and provide CPR or be able to use the medications that might be provided in the right. in the kit if they feel qualified to do so. And there's also um, in the United States at least there's no obligation to actually answer those calls. Oh. So. No good Samaritan law being broken there? Nope. It says physicians are under no legal obligation to assist. 
All right. So, but it does ensure that if you are assisting, that you're protected. So we do have those protections. Good. Well, that's good to know. Well, not for me, but for you. He says, uh, oh, he, he just ends with, um, I also love, oh, <laughs> I'm not sure what he means here. I love to wear my captain. Um, uh, not sure. Here, he wraps up with great podcast. By the way, did I ever mention that? You did now. So thank you, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, Great thank podcast. you, Stephen. And I don't, yeah, uh, as, a, as we, uh, we're, we're guessing here that um, uh, either he, he drank too much of that gin, that wonderful uh, Homburg gin, or more likely it's probably uh, the speech-to-text translation. It's voice-to-text, yeah. Probably. I'm wondering, do you think he did it in English, speech-to-text? Yeah. I think I, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm sure it sounded perfect, uh, Stefan. Um, it's just that the uh, the AI just isn't quite up to snuff when it comes to, uh, you know, Hopefully I got the gist of what you were getting I at there. So. And I yeah. got the stories right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's great feedback. Thank you, uh, Stefan, for, uh, for that. And uh, so it looks like now it is time for us to wrap up the show. Wrap up the show! That's the call out for, uh, and my, as I said, I'm, I'm envisioning like people scurrying around, like tightening up loose ends and, uh, yeah. well, I can even yeah. hear the staff, uh, the, the staff, uh, staff, wrap up. Yeah. I'm right here. Okay. Oh yeah. Liz says she's, she's tidying up as we speak. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's see, what do we like to do here? We like to tell you that we have a website, airline pilotguy.com. And uh, we talked about it earlier a little bit when we talked about the coffee fund. You can go to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee, learn about how you can uh, become a part of our coffee fund cadre or our coffee bar club. Uh, we also have information about Dr. Steph and Liz and everybody else on the crew. Uh, we have information about uh, our community and how you can participate in that. And we have a library, Dr. Uh, not Dr. <laughs> uh, Tiffany, uh, our librarian, uh, manages all that. Oh, you know, she's all, well, no, I guess she's almost a lawyer now, right? She's a, uh, legal librarian now, library. I think. She's in the yeah. law library. Law librarian. There we go. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll, I'll get it right eventually. And, uh, so much more on that site. So do you want me to put up the QR code now? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and put the QR code up there. Thank you, Liz. Uh, that is the QR code that you point your device at, and it should uh, address your fee your uh, email to send it to our feedback uh, address. And uh, uh, Dr. Steph is uh, demonstrating how you do that. And did it have that same warning that you had last time? No, now it comes up with feedback at airlinepilotguy.com ah, awesome. and not just your name. That's what it's been corrected. Okay. That's the way, uh huh, uh huh. We like it. Yeah, for sure. So, anyway, uh, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com if you want to send us some feedback. And you can attach some audio to that as well so we can hear your lovely voice. And uh, we're also on social media. And uh, Dr. Steph is going to tell us all about that. It's been a long day, I guess. It has been. Um, <laughs> If you're on it's social media, it's almost over. Hello, don't go yet. Yeah, make sure he doesn't leave. Yeah, he's there. We're good. Yeah. We're confirmed he's for Hillel. Yes. I'll include him. I'll include okay. him. But first, we're going to talk about Facebook. We're on Facebook. It's facebook.com/slash/airlinepilotguy. You could also head over to X, 
just going to call it that. Okay. We're at APG Crew, and we still have our individual handles pinned to the top of that page, I think, unless they change that somehow. Uh, over on Instagram, we're APG Crew, and you can uh, head over there to see Captain Nick's weekly artwork, which is so fantastic. He puts a lot of effort into all of that, and maybe it's mostly AI doing it. I'm not sure, but it's great. And if you want to get into the deep weeds of the community, that would be Slack. And I think Hillel actually has wrapped up his shower. Yeah, he's already out of the shower and <laughs> oh, okay. anticipating I that I was going to ask him to tell us all about Slack. My, I'm sorry, I, I fired that thing off. Uh, I was trying to kind of kind of get your, your pacing there, uh, but I was off. I talked too much. No, That's no, okay. no. No, we, we, we don't hear enough of you stuff. All right. Uh, so... So, hello. Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. What? Brazilian landing strip? What? Uh-oh. Uh, no. Uh, Hello. Don't do it. Don't do it, man. Uh, that's sad. Uh, thanks again, Hello. That's, um, for, uh, that's, wow. that, that's, quite, that's quite some work that he's doing today. Um, and uh, <laughs> let's bring on uh, Liz. Help us, Liz. Uh, uh, yeah, I, uh, thanks so Jeff much. Jeff running for, out of steam. <laughs> thank you for uh, being there and all the hard work that you do before, during, and after the show. It's really appreciated. My pleasure. And we also want to say thank you to our uh, live audience, that uh, most of uh, whom are with us every week, and we really do appreciate them being there. They really add a lot to our show. And finally, um, yeah. Like to say, have a great week, and we hope to see you again here next week. And uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying 
I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly 